0: South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555.
2: All right. A very good morning across South Texas in the hill country and wherever you might happen to be listening on the Internet. Uh, we are live and local this morning, as we love to see around KTSA. It was at the big gift market in Atlanta last Saturday. and uh, Well, Saturday and Sunday and several other days. But uh, I was just telling our tell tell and our our chief operations manager that uh don't really have another day away from the radio plan for several months now so uh if you've been missing getting your questions in uh, i sure plan to be here for you and speaking of that sue is the only one holding right now we'll get to her in just one second but if you got a question if you'd like to get in early uh you know the number 210-599-5555 lots of things to talk about still recovering from the big freeze a few weeks ago we're moving into that time when we start doing other things getting real close to potato planting time getting real close to rose pruning time i could go on and on and on but what interests me most is what's on your mind so uh give me a call i'll look forward to talking to you 210-599-5555 and speaking of talking to people let's say good morning to sue what's going on this morning good morning wow i
3: feel like I must be getting smarter being first caller.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Either that or you have insomnia, one or the other. But, uh, you know, people yeah people who don't get up early in my opinion miss the prettiest part of the day it's just it's quiet uh of course i look forward to the sun coming up but uh it's just uh yeah. and some people tell me well it's the only time of day i'm not tired so for whatever reason uh, i think it's good to get up early in the morning and it's sure good to hear your voice
3: well thank you um so I've called about this before, and I'm still struggling with this problem. I have two-by-four beds. I'm Not two-by-four. They're made out of two-by-twelves, and they're Uh four-by-eight. And the tree roots are just miserable in there. And I've dug it out before, and then I've ignored them. And I think their presence is making things worse. My attempt now, and I just want to talk to you before I put all this effort into it, is to dig it all out again, use those four-by-four cloth uh, containers, Mm
4: -hmm.
3: and put put those in and put the soil back in those. My concern is that the tree roots will probably pop through that cloth. So what could I put on the bottom so the roots don't penetrate, but things still, moisture, water still drains.
2: And are these roots from surrounding trees do you have ash trees I, what kind of trees do you have
3: i think they're oak trees that's okay. pretty much all that's around us
2: and how far are the trees from your beds <laughs> well
3: well there's one that's uh just 2 feet, and then the neighbor's trees are <laughs> even closer i mean it's just
2: okay well uh, you're yeah, you're right it's uh uh it is going to be some effort. And the trees, you know, I could tell you stories back in the early days of when we started the nursery, we had out in, uh, we were much smaller then, and we had whiskey barrels, you know, with holes drilled in the bottom that we planted with all sorts of annuals and had them at different places around. And we discovered the same thing. All of a sudden, you know, after a year or two, uh it seemed like we were just having to water all the time and the flowering plants yep. we put in there just weren't thriving and the blasted tree roots had gone up through the drilled holes in the bottom of the whiskey barrels and just totally filled up the barrels so um it, and you can't really blame the trees i mean they're going to put their roots where they're getting the water where they're getting the nutrients where you know where it's just the kind of place that they want to live so sure. It's going to be an an ongoing issue. Um, I think rather than go to the expense of the um, you know, or of the cloth beds because they don't give those things away, no, I would probably just, and this is one of the few places I will ever recommend it is the so called weed barrier and um. I again, it's going to be a lot of work to dig the soil out of those beds, and if you can dig deeper than the uh, two by tens or two by twelves, whatever the edges are made out of, you know, dig or have whoever's helping you dig, you know, as deep as you feel like digging. If you went down, oh golly, <clears throat> another ten inches, twelve inches all the better <laughs> yeah i know wishful thinking but uh and if you hit any major major roots on that oak tree um try not to cut those you know just dig around them go a little bit deeper but the nice thing about the weed block is it is flexible and you know if you need to kind of go up over a root a little bit that's okay And the nice thing is those big roots don't tend to branch and just fill up the soil with those little feeder roots the way, you know, the smaller roots will. But what you're basically going to do is turn the bed into a big flower pot. You're going to limit how deep the roots of what you planted that bed can grow. So obviously the bigger the flower pot, the happier the plants are going to be because the bigger the root system, you know, that they will have. So, again, I don't like, well, I don't like any of the weed block fabrics, but the ones that are kind of fuzzy are probably the worst. The ones that are okay. smooth are are more effective, I will put it that way. And what you're going to need to do, and you say the beds are 4 by 8? Correct. You're going to need to have fabric that is probably at a minimum six feet wide um, because you're you're not just going to put this on the bottom of the bed. You're going to put it up the sides of your 2x12s and you, all you have to do is staple it on. You can Once you get the soil in there, it's not going anywhere. So just that good old good. gun tacker, stapler, or ace or arrow or whatever, whichever kind you're using, you're going to want to you know put that weed block. And like I say, I'd be doing it Three four layers thick because it wow. will okay. it will break down over time. But the good news is, it's pretty cheap, and um, it, it's a lot cheaper than the fabric pots would be. And I, again, I would come up the. I'd, I'd probably you said the beds are made with two by twelves.
3: Correct. Yeah.
2: Which are they're actually about eleven and three eighths inches wide. Right. But a a six foot wide piece of the weed block fabric. Is gonna let you go almost to the top of the sides, then just down, flatten it across the bottom, bring it up the other side, staple it, and you know put that put that soil back in, and you're you're gonna stop them for years to come. I you know I won't say it'll last forever, but uh, uh, it, doing it doing it two three levels thick, you are probably good for ten years before you're gonna have to worry about it again.
3: Well, I know this is going to turn into give a mouse a cookie moment because then I'll decide oh well the boards are a little warped and rotten maybe we should replace those. <laughs> I can well, see the dollar signs growing here. But, um,
2: yes, and and if you do decide to replace the wood, go with Eco Vantage. Um, you'll have to Google it or uh, you can call me here at the nursery and I'll I'll try to help you find a place to. Find it. It's it's a little more expensive than treated wood, but you're looking at 50 years' life instead of five years' life. And um, it's the other, well, other materials you can use. Some people build raised beds out of cinder blocks. If you want a wood-like material, this synthetic wood, like what they call Trex, T-R-E-X. Um, I mm. think lowe 's will order it for you. all you ever see in most places is going is going to be that standard basic one by six and uh, i don 't like the material at all, but it it is almost indestructible uh, It does yeah. bulge more, and i don 't think it 's very pretty right. but um the eco vantage they 've had it in ground contact for thirty years in East texas no rotting they 've mm. used it for you know, with piles, and pilings in swamps for 30 years with no rotting, and if you want to see what it looks like, we've built yeah. a number of things with it over here at the nursery, and yeah. you can get it. Yeah, you can get it in a two by twelve width. I actually got some two mm-hmm. by twelves at one point. Um, forgotten whether we're building steps or what we were using them for but you you can get it in two by 12 widths and if you do replace with that it's going to be that's going to be the last time you're going to have to replace it because i'm thinking it's probably going to have a minimum 50 year life
3: yeah (laughs) yeah they will exceed me um no your benches are beautiful i saw those
2: very good well we've got the whole greenhouse built out of it too our cactus and succulent house is built out of it and that's what the new arbors that we you know put over the areas that's all the same material and and it is gorgeous wood it's a carpenter's dream to work with it doesn't warp it doesn't cup um anyway it's just if if you were doing it over i'd tell you that was a place to start but you know one step at a time uh Uh, Right now we're dealing with the tree roots. We'll deal with the wood problem a little bit later.
3: Yeah. But as far as digging down 10 inches, you know, I'm on rock. Would it be so bad not to do that? I mean, I'd be chipping away. Oh, no. Just, just, and
2: what basically are you growing or do you plan to grow in these beds?
3: Well, this is like, you know, where... I would have done my lettuces, uh, Uh just all the little veggies that I kind of would put in.
2: Well, lettuces, spinach, leafy greens, things like that, Uh, 12 inches is going to be plenty of soil. So don't feel like you have to go much deeper than that. If you told me you were going to grow artichokes, um, tomatoes would Prefer well, 18 inches <laughs> <laughs> well let's it's just say well. yeah the bigger the bigger plants be it peppers tomatoes eggplant artichokes things like that um, would love it if you could make it a little bit deeper mm. but uh, leafy okay. greens radishes beets carrots turnips um, even broccoli and cauliflower 12 inches is going to be adequate. And yeah, think it doesn't about it sound
3: like any of the summer vegetables would be happy there, you know except for maybe beans i guess
2: well but but think about this um if that bed is four feet wide and you've got twelve inches of good soil at the sides, you can berm it up you can uh you know you you can raise it up much higher in the center, or what would be very easy to do um I hope I can describe this. Uh, so that you get a good visual picture. But if you moved in, uh, you know, a foot from each side and took another, let's say, 2x12 and stood it up on edge, secured it with the boards at the ends, now you have a two-tier garden. You have, yeah, you know, an outer foot that is going to be 12 inches deep on each side, and then in the middle, you've got a an area that's going to be um, basically twenty four inches deep of course it's going to be slightly less than that, but you've still got something you can reach into the whole thing and you put your your put your summer veggies in the middle of that uh and then you plant your uh whatever you're going to plant i mean you can grow uh uh chard will pretty much grow through the summer months you can grow uh a lot of you know, different kinds of squash that will grow and trail over the edge and out into the yard, and cucumbers, and you know, bushing varieties, and things like that. So, um, I, I, that's what I would think about doing. Uh, and that would be
3: I know what you mean, mm-hmm.
2: yeah, that would be a whole lot less work than trying to dig out that much down below. And, you know, hmm. plus that way you can fill with good soil. And that's how, if if I were to, so, that's what I would probably do is make it just a, okay. uh, a two-tier garden and put your things that want more root space in the center and put your, you know, things that don't require as much on the edges.
3: Okay. Well, very good. Thank you. Appreciate it.
2: Well, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Have a great weekend, and uh, thanks for getting up early. Okay. Appreciate Thank it, Sue. Goodbye. I believe we have John waiting to talk next. Good morning, John.
5: Good morning, Bob. I have a morning, question sir. about rock phosphate and potatoes and some other vegetables.
2: All right, I sir. Cut
5: my, I cut my potatoes last night. I hope I didn't make a mistake by doing that. And I was going to roll them in the rock phosphate and then plant them. Is that the correct way to do it?
2: That's what I do. Um, the here's one thing I would do, uh, or would have done, is you know when you cut your your potato pieces, and of course you I'm sure got a couple of eyes in each one, yeah that's a moist surface, and I go ahead and roll it in the rock phosphate because rock phosphate sticks to it much better. Having dried overnight. You haven't really created any problem for the potato as far as growing, but your rock phosphate's not going to stick to those little cut pieces nearly as well. So as I was planting, I'd have myself a bucket of water. I'd dip that piece of potato down into the water to wet it. I would then... Dip it in the rock phosphate so the rock phosphate sticks to the cut surfaces a little bit better and then plant it. That's that. That's the only thing that, you know, I would do. And I'll be quite honest, uh, potatoes are one thing that I have never felt it was necessary to really let them, you know, callous, so to speak. We do that with lots of things. It's very, very important with a number of plants that we may cut and grow that we do let that cut surface seal over, as it were, with with potatoes I'm usually, you know, I'm just cutting as I go, throwing in a bucket of rock phosphate and just, you know, walking along. I use one of these little uh, uh, bits. It's called a max bit. I was counting one time. You put it on your electric drill and it digs a hole for you. Uh, and I think I dug like 40 holes in under five minutes with that. And then uh, I just, you know, I'm walking along there, just basically taking a cut pieces of potato, rolling them in the rock phosphate, putting them in the ground. So it's those are not something you need to allow to dry before you plant. So that's the only thing I would do differently. Uh, you haven't hurt anything by letting them dry, but like I say, I just uh, have a, you know, bucket of water, pitcher of water, whatever there, and uh, I just dip them in that, then dip them in the rock phosphate. You just would like the rock phosphate to stick to that cut edge because it's going to help with root development.
5: And about six inches deep.
2: No, probably um, more like two inches deep. You're you're growing your regular red skin potatoes and white potatoes and things like that. Uh, yes. yes. Yeah. No. No reason to go down six inches. Uh, two or okay. three inches is going to be, you know, all you need. You probably. As the potatoes grow, you will you know you'll be putting some mulch or you'll be mounding a little bit of soil up on the sides. But even if you planted them six inches deep, uh those potatoes are going to grow a little bit closer to the surface, and you just don't want the potatoes the developing potatoes to get up where too much sunlight hits them because that causes them to start making chlorophyll, and that basically ruins them. Um, as far as, you know, quality for eating. So uh, I don't, I, you could plant them six inches deep if you wanted to, but it's certainly not necessary. It's going to take them much longer to sprout. I If I've got an inch, even an inch of soil over the top, two inches max, that's all you need to do growing potatoes in this area.
6: Okay.
5: And then uh, you also use the rock phosphate uh, for my tomatoes, uh, bell bell pepper and my jalapenos by putting them in you know below where they're gonna grow before you put them in the soil.
2: Yeah, you're you're an excellent listener. Um I I think it makes a tremendous difference with tomatoes. I, I think uh, people have found that it pretty much doubles the production they get from their tomatoes when they do that. peppers it helps eggplant it helps, but the results are not nearly as dramatic so um, your your tomatoes is, are the important places to put it. Uh, the thing is, and the reason is that you put a layer is that when rock phosphate is blended into the soil it becomes chemically tied up to where it can't benefit the plants you want to have a layer of it there that the plants can put their roots through and that way they will they will benefit from the phosphate there but uh and this this is something old malcolm beck discovered years ago he he tried putting the layer underneath his uh, tomatoes doubled his production and got double dollar signs in his eyes and he went out and he bought like a ton or two tons of the rock phosphate or something thing, plowed it into the garden, and was extremely disappointed when he got no benefits whatsoever from it. But he had made the mistake of blending it with the soil so that it was chemically tied up to where the plants couldn't benefit from it when you put that... Uh, layer of it there you know probably quarter of an inch I just dump a handful of the bottom of the whole plant on top of it and uh, it really does make a difference now I know you're sitting there saying well should I do that for my potatoes And, and no, it's not really necessary because we're doing two different things. With potatoes, we're helping the root development and just putting it on the edges there, the plants are going to get as much as they will benefit from having. The tomatoes, we want it more for fruit development. It certainly helps the root system, but the main thing we're looking for is to help the plant set more fruit and develop more good, juicy fruit, big fruit and lots of varieties, small fruit in other varieties. So uh, tomatoes, peppers, things like that. Yeah, the the layer is the important, something where we're just trying to cauterize the edge of a cut and give the root some start, uh, some help getting started, then, you know, just putting it on the surface. Some people will take other bedding plants and, uh, you know, lettuces and things like that. And simply sprinkle it on the root system before they put the little plant down in the ground. So we're, we're using it two different ways for two different purposes. But long as you understand that, you're going to do it the right way every time.
7: Sounds great, Bob. Uh,
2: thank you for your input. Well, it's uh, isn't it exciting now that we're kind of getting to the season where we can go back out to gardening? I, I, you know, and potatoes. The nice thing about potatoes, they can freeze down a time or two or three, and it won't really hurt them that much. They'll come back out. Um oh, but,
6: I'm, I'm I'm hoping we don't get a freeze again. Like I'm, I am, I am. Blanket's ready to go.
2: I I am too, but we're having people. Thinking about putting their tomato plants in the ground, and what I would always remind people is, I mean, this past winter was rough. This past winter was a bitterly cold winter, but two years ago, it was colder much longer, and that severe, severe cold we had two years ago, that blew in on Valentine's Day. So, <laughs> we're we're not out of the woods as as far as cold weather yet. But I'm with you. I'm no. I'm hoping we're beyond we're beyond anything severe. We're we're looking at a freeze in the hill country later this week. But uh, there's a big difference in you know 31 degrees than you know nine degrees. So I I'm hoping that uh, uh, that the severe part of the winter is over with. But this is Texas. Just always remember, anything can happen.
6: We get a little bit lucky down here sometimes in Pleasanton. We get a little bit of a different <laughs> weather. We we really do. It's
5: amazing.
2: Oh, yeah. it's, uh, it's
5: about a five-degree difference sometimes, and that makes all the difference in the world.
2: And so, it does. Okay. Well, listen, it's a okay. pleasure visiting with you. You get out in that garden to get those potatoes planted, and I uh, appreciate your call this morning. Thank you. Bye-bye. You're welcome, John. Thank you. Well, we're coming up pretty close to news time. Uh, I know everybody starts waking up about this time. And uh, um, give me a call. Do you know how the lines get kind of jammed up a little bit later in the show when it gets harder to get through and the waits get longer? So if you want to be up first after the news, you know the number, 210-599-5555. We appreciate you calling. We are KTSA Radio right here in beautiful San Antonio, Texas. South
0: Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now.
2: 210-599-5555. All right. Back to gardening on this cool, but it's going to be a really, really nice morning out there. You're going to be wearing long sleeves, light jacket, <laughs> but it's uh, it's certainly going to be great weather, especially if you've got any hard work to do. It's <laughs> like like my first caller, Sue, was talking about digging out a new a, a redoing a bed to get rid of roots and things like that. This kind of day, it just feels good to get out and get that exercise. So get out and get the garden ready, whether it's flower garden or a vegetable garden. A lot of things you can't even be considering putting in the ground yet. Although there are a lot of things you can plant today, but it sure is time to get that soil ready. Uh, the next two callers are going to be Kim and Patrick, and Kim is first in line. Good morning, Kim. Good
7: morning, Bob. Good morning. I have a as a mic question, okay. Um, okay, I, I I use the micronized powdery form because I was doing uh-huh. some investigating. I it's I understand that that's the most readily available to the plant when you apply it because it's just real broken down already.
2: Well, and it I'm all gonna... comes all comes down to surface area. And, of course, like everything just about that's beneficial to plants, much of it is available through microbial action. So when you micronize something, you're increasing the surface area perhaps, you know, a hundredfold or even more than that. So, yes, the micronized form is very definitely the most readily available form.
7: Okay. So um... – I guess my question is, because when you're, when I'm starting to look at doing um, a larger garden area or a larger service, because I do this in my with my plume areas in my home flower beds and pots with mixed with uh, compost and stuff like that. So if I'm looking at doing a bit of a larger area,
4: uh-huh. I know
7: that they also make a granular and then a field grade. And each uh-huh. of those gets a little bit bigger. And, of course, the application process is a little easier because I actually use like a little powder. <laughs> A powder sugar dispenser with my um, uh-huh. with the powder form, but the um, the granular. I know you can use like a handheld um, dispenser and stuff. How long? Like my two questions are: How long does it take the crystallized or the um, granular form to break down? And how long does that does the mic I mean the uh, azomite stay in the soil?
2: Well, it's great. Both great questions, and of course, the um, the more you micronize it, the faster it's available to the plants, but the faster it's used up. Um, it's it's hard to say because temperature plays a role, moisture plays a role. If I were thinking about doing it, I probably would just mix a little bit of the micronized in with one of the more granular forms, and. I don't know how big your area is, but you're, you're not talking about acreage. So um, in my garden, I basically get out there and just sling it out by hand. And, I mean, if you want real even coverage, those little handheld crank spreaders, yeah, that's great. But to me, that's a lot more work than just, you know, a bucket and, uh, and, and just sprinkling it around, so to speak. But uh, as far as how often to do it. If I were using the micronized form, I would add it uh, every time I was replanting. And, you know, every in the vegetable garden, you know, I'm probably making big plantings a couple of times a year and smaller plantings a couple of times in between. And I would add some azimuth to the area each time I planted. The more horse form it may be as much as two to three years i i haven't seen the research and i can't say i have enough research for my own garden because i don't want to be solving a problem i want to be preventing a problem and with something like azomite uh using too much of it the only place it's going to hurt is the bank account it's not going to hurt the plants if we use it a little bit more often than we should so i, I can't tell you exactly how long it will last I'm guessing that the field grade, probably an application every two to three years, would be adequate. Um, where, like I say, with the micronized form, if I'm looking for best results, I'm actually going to be putting it in two or three times a year.
7: Okay, and the green, and then they have that in between. So I, I like your idea of mixing the two. Um, in fact, I was kind of thinking about that. To, because it would make it go a little further, and it may even be a little
2: easier. Yeah. <laughs> right. The other thing to do is pick a windy day, and, uh, and, and this is what I do. I, I, you know, uh, ashes out of my fireplace, I add a very small amount to the garden. But what I do is is basically, you know, get a windy day. I'll go stand it, you know, with the wind to my back and just kind of pitch that bucket full up in the air and let the, let the wind spread it around for me. So you can be creative in how you put it out.
7: Yeah um how uh, how deep how should you should this be worked into the soil or is it okay to use it like as a top dressing and let it just get watered in
2: you can put it on either way again the closer it is to the roots you know the faster it's going to be available to them and uh it is it is a rock material, so it doesn't really dissolve. It's not it's not going into a liquid form and then penetrating down into the soil. The moisture is carrying it down into the soil. And what, you know, I, I'm not big into tilling because of the weed problem it, it creates. So I'm not going to tell you to go sprinkle it out and then double-dig your garden and blend it all into the soil. What I tend to do is put it on the surface, and then as I plant uh, and I realize you're doing plumerias and tropical things, but you're still taking, you know, put it on the surface, take the soil out as you make your hole, and then you're going to put the soil back around your plants. I think that's all the blending you have to worry about doing.
7: Right, yeah, and we're actually going to be doing this in a, a little bit bigger vegetable garden. So, uh-huh. And I did put the first time, we did some boxes and stuff, so I just was kind of curious, and we're going to expand the garden. So, I'm gonna.
2: <laughs> no garden's ever big enough, just like a um, greenhouse, it's never big enough.
7: Exactly, exactly. Um, all right, well, thank you very much. You definitely answered my questions, and I was just curious about this because I noticed it came in the three forms, and I didn't know if and I knew that one was more available you know, it was more readily yeah, available right. to the plant, but I it does make sense that. It's going to break down quicker, so if you kind of mix it together, it'll be available longer.
2: That's exactly right. And remember the surface area. Just the more surface area you create, the more the plants, the more quickly the plants are going to be able to use it.
7: Is this kind of like maybe lava sand, too? That, you know, if you add a little bit each year, you're only going to get the soil better and better, and then the more you add, the better? Or do you think (laughs) it's.
2: Okay. Well, yes and no, uh, with the azomite you 're adding materials that are actually used up by the plant, lava sand you are getting more physical benefits than you are nutrient benefits i mean lava if you added it once every thousand years should be doing okay uh he's <laughs> need to do it a little bit more often than that and i think yes as you add more over time you you increase what we call the cation exchange capacity the ability of the soil to hang on to fertilizer you increase the Ability of the soil to hold more moisture without becoming anaerobic, without creating, you know, just a soggy condition. So um, they have some similarities, but a lot of differences.
7: Is it better to apply it with compost to allow the microbes to have something to work with, or does that not make a difference either?
2: It definitely does with fertilizers, with azomite. I think the jury's still out. Uh, compost is always a wonderful thing, and I encourage people to use it as often as you right. can, whether it's, you know, as readily beneficial. You keep your records. You do your research, and you call and share with the rest of us so uh, we can learn from you. I'll do that. Appreciate it, All Kim. right.
7: Thank you so much, Rob. You have a great day.
2: You do the same. Thank you. All right, Patrick is next in line. Good morning, Patrick. Oh, you just made my day. You said no garden is, is big enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, uh, you know, it's uh, it, it's kind of like one of my favorite expressions about a Texas rancher, which I have yeah, on a small scale. But uh, as somebody always said, the uh, uh, rancher doesn't want all the land in the world, just the land that's next to his. <laughs>
5: yeah. Yeah, well. Now I'll be ordering some more dirt today. It's, it's Excellent. Um, I got <laughs> guilty as charged.
8: Questions.
5: Yeah. Um, my uh, avocado trees—we put them in the greenhouse so that they would survive the freeze, and they did pretty well. Uh, and they're kind of flourishing. They're about four foot tall. I got Good. Them at Fanix, and, uh-huh. uh, but the problem I have is, is that I'm looking at the at the plant, and the it's budding in clusters. Mm-hmm. Do I need to trim some of those? Because no. I mean, it looks like no. a broccoli plant. There's so many.
2: I, I would. Um, you, your avocado is going to produce a lot more blooms than it is fruit. And if you get in there and, you know, start taking the buds off, the maybe the buds you took off are the ones that had the best chance of being pollinated and forming avocados. I would let it right. do let them do their thing. And, um, I mean, either open the greenhouse up so you get some pollinators in there on warm days, or else you know pollinate yourself. but I would do what I recommend on peaches and things, and that is after the little fruit has formed, after it's gotten maybe not up to grape size but certainly bigger than an English pea uh and and it's less likely to drop at that point, go through and thin things out so that the remaining avocados will be bigger. But until we see that we've got fruit developing, I'm not going to be taking away anything that might be, you know, contributing to my next guacamole session. Yeah,
5: I got you on that. Uh, Also, I uh, transplanted that uh, big peach tree, and I've been out there. The lady next door says, why are you watering the branches? I said, because Bob said so. (laughs) So, uh,
4: I don't know why, but I am
2: well you're what it it's real simple. the branches that have the smooth bark are capable of absorbing moisture uh as careful as you were, you obviously did some damage to the root system, so uh it's kind of like you know when people can't eat, they put them on an i v so they get the nutrition and the moisture they need to you know get over whatever their ailment uh is, and that's the same way with the tree. You're helping the tree get its roots established while that root system isn't able to take up the water. Uh, that the tree needs. Uh, you're just giving it its, its own IV, so to speak. So uh, it makes good sense that I've had, I can't tell you how many people, you know, come back and say, my God, I didn't, didn't think I had a chance. and My trees are doing beautifully. So you're definitely doing the right thing.
5: Yeah, I'm gonna tell her that I'm giving it an IV, and then she'll look at me even funnier.
2: Um, <laughs> well, it's best if next- people don't ever think they have you figured out. You know, if you're if you're just a little on the edge, it uh, makes you a more interesting person.
5: Right. Uh, the next thing I have is, what's your take on uh, seeds that they sell that are uh, in Mylar bags uh, to to save
2: for later? Uh, do you have an opinion on that, one way or another? Well, it, it, it's a mixed blessing. Uh, the thing that that destroys the viability in seeds, uh, at least uh, probably I think the most significant factor, is dehydration. And uh, But at the same time, you don't want moisture, condensation, in direct contact with the seed because that can create a fungus that will destroy the seed. I am much more partial to putting my seed, if anything I need to save, whether it's fresh or the package is open or not, uh, putting it into basically a manila envelope, something that breathes, but then putting that envelope inside of a mason jar. There are times when I've got more mason jars in my refrigerator of seeds than I do of food. And I, again, I'm I'm not into sealing up something to where it can't, you know, uh, have you know some gas exchange and things like that uh, you can't just put them in the refrigerator loose because modern refrigerators are made to have as low humidity as possible so you don't get the old frost build up that that you know we probably remember our mothers having to defrost the refrigerator so it's much better to seal it up inside of a jar but um, and periodically open it so you do get a little bit more gas exchange. But uh, that—that's how I choose to save seeds rather than relying on the packaging to do it.
5: Right, gotcha. Uh, last question is—is is that I was going to order some more uh, garden soil, uh-huh. um, and because uh, we live out here in limestone land. Oh, yes, and, sir. Um, Me too. What I wanted—what I wanted to do was. Uh, uh, stock it up in one area of our property Uh and my question is can I should I cover it or should I just leave it open because we're probably not going to use it this year Uh prices being what they are I fully expect that it'll go up again for next year but all of our gardens are full and ready to plant right now but I wanted to have some uh, reserve for down the road and what's your take on that
2: Well, don't get carried away with it. Uh, I used to fuss at Malcolm Beck because I felt like he was selling a lot of his soils before the compost was really fully broken down, before the soil was really mature and ready. And his answer to me was, Bob, I have to because it's because of shrinkage. He said that soil pile is going to get much smaller as the compost breaks down, he said, and I couldn't charge enough money on it to, for it to stay in business. So, you know, you put five yards, pile up five yards of soil out there. By the time you're ready to use it, you're only going to have two yards of soil to use. So don't get carried away. Now, if you're, you know getting soil off your own property uh stockpile that and uh you know leave it open and then just when you're ready to add it to your garden blend in some good compost improve it but i'm not going to go out and spend a lot of money on more expensive soil that's going to shrink to a third or half of its volume uh because i'm not going to be using it immediately so does that help you make that decision
5: yeah that i I didn't realize that the that those uh
2: Uh, piles would would break down like that. Uh, And they get better and better as they do. But um, all of a sudden that, you know, that soil that you paid, you know, $40 a yard for is now going to be $80 a yard because volume is only half as much. So it's, uh, I I, I don't think the economics of it are as great as you think they might be.
5: Okay. Uh, Last question. Uh, I've got a a cedar forest down there, where most of my wild animals and my mountain lion hangs out, mm-hmm. and um, the uh, uh, the soil down there is primarily from a lot of the cedar breaking down, and it looks pretty right. good. Uh, it's going to be a little difficult to to get it out of there, but I was wondering what you thought about the quality of that particular soil.
2: It's good organic material. You know, the best best soils are a blend of different sources of organic material. But those people who say oh nothing grows underneath the cedar because it poisons the soil. And it's called alleliopathy and nothing there's nothing alleliopathic about cedar needles. Things don't grow under cedars because of lack of light and lack of moisture. Uh those needles break down uh, and you know that's that's what's been out there building the soil along with grasses and other things uh for you know, the hundreds of years since the time that uh, man eliminated wildfire and, and created all the cedar problems, but that's a whole other story. But, no, that that material as it decomposes, again, blended with other decomposing materials, makes a perfectly good soil.
5: Yeah, we stripped uh, three acres of cedar, and uh, now I've got grass that grows down there that's three foot tall. So yes, pretty, sir. it solidifies what you said. Yes, sir. All right, well, I'll sure do that. Appreciate your time. We'll be stopping by the store today. Got to pick up always, the spots,
2: Always look forward to seeing you, Patrick. We're always here till 4, so uh, look forward to seeing you. And I need to get a break in here. Curtis and Pete are up next, but I get to talk to you about oh, one of my favorite subjects, and that is good health, good natural health. And that's where I think you've simply... <laughs> We'll find ways to help when you visit Rhonda at Rhonda's Nature's Way. Rhonda and her staff are so knowledgeable, and let's face it, as we age, uh, um, little problems tend to occur, whether it's with our joints, whether it's with our sleep, maybe our digestion, heaven forbid, moods, and things like that, but number one if you suffer from those things there are natural solutions to most of them far better than what your doctor is going to give you in a prescribed pill Rhonda knows all about it and has things that will help just about any issue you can name plus you can head off a lot of problems through proper supplements you can boost your immune system um, in this day of COVID and flu and everything else, there's nothing more important. A strong immune system is the best thing you can have. And Rhonda, well, that's I take immune support products that I get from her. Rhonda also has great vitamins. She also has a lot of... Things that oh, just help you in different ways. Dieting, but still have a bit of a sweet tooth. She's got things that taste so sweet and good, but they don't have any refined sugar, and they don't have any artificial sweeteners. Uh, things like, oh, monk fruit sweetened, and all. Monk fruit is uh, an amazing thing. She has chocolates that you will swear are the best, richest things you've ever eaten, and yet uh, they can actually fit into a diet program. You just need to go see Rhonda. She and her staff are there six days a week, always closed on Sundays. They're out in the shopping center there at the corner of Callahan and I-10. By the way, tell her I said hello. She also does reflexology, red light therapy, beamer light therapy, Oh, just all sorts of great, great ways that you can improve your health and feel better naturally at Rhonda's Nature's Way. <music> South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk
0: 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All
2: right. Back to gardening and back to the phone lines. Curtis is up next. Good morning, Curtis.
8: Good morning, Bob.
2: Morning, sir. It's going
8: to be a beautiful day.
2: (laughs) sure looks like it.
8: I got a few questions for you. I've been saving them up because I never can get through. I have a persimmon or... It's a Japanese cocky tree. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Uh huh. I just planted it last October or November, and it had one little per, one persimmon on it, which was delicious. Yes, sir. <laughs> and now it's shed all of its leaves, and I'm I'm hoping this is deciduous, right?
2: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. The Asian persimmons are are always uh, deciduous. Uh, many of these things live in very cold climates, China, Korea, places like that. And um, the even the severe cold that we've had, I'm not going to say that I've never seen damage when we see a real warm period followed by intense, intense cold. Yeah, you could get a little damage there, but no, your it's perfectly normal for your persimmon to have shed all the sleeves. I don't think there's any problem at all there.
8: Okay, well that last cold snap we had, I threw a a blanket around it and well I built up some. Uh, now I forget what it's called.
2: <laughs> well, I, I think you're fine. Long, I threw, long threw story some, short, threw yes, some, sir.
8: Yeah. Threw, threw some soil up or, built up around it and put a blanket on it and it seemed to be
2: okay. Well, pull that soil but, back now because you don't want anything moist up against the trunk. But at this point, I think the most important thing on fruit trees is uh, regular thorough watering because our subsoils are getting so dry, but uh, your persimmon should be fine. Okay, I I have pulled the soil back.
8: i got a question about hackberries and oaks. I've got uh, a couple of paddocks uh, for the horse and sheep, Mm -hmm. and I've got all these hackberries, little hackberries, growing up around the oaks. I'm thinking... Maybe these hackberries are just stealing all the water from the oaks and be better off if I just got rid of all the hackberries and
2: around the oak. (laughs) Well, the oaks would be happy, but good luck on that because you've got the hackberries because the blasted mockingbirds and everything else set up in the trees and, you know, pooped out the seeds. And hackberries are. Uh, they they're they're tough i walk up and down i've got a you know 100 year old rock fence in one area and other things and i try where i can to get them at a point where i can literally pull them out of the ground roots and all um that and i certainly don't get all of them and i can tell you you're going to have a great deal of trouble Really eliminating them, but uh, the more you can keep them mowed down, yeah, your oaks are going to appreciate not having the competition there. But it's uh, uh, it, it's not an easy thing to eliminate, and believe me. And and certainly don't get out there and use toxic poisons or anything trying to kill them. You can when they're young. You can spray with a vinegar and orange oil mix because that kills, uh, you know, above the ground only. Um, you can run through it with your riding mower when they're small enough that you can just, you know, mow them off that way, or a push mower either way. But um, yeah, it'd be nice to be rid of them, but it's simply not going to happen. You're going to keep them under control. You're not going to eliminate them.
8: Okay. And next question: the, the horse and the and the uh, sheep are really hard on on the paddocks. Uh, I let them run in one, and it just they turn it to dirt. Just bare right. dirt, uh, bear dirt. When, and I rotate them. I've got one that's growing really well now, mm-hmm. and I'm about to move them over to that one. and what what kind of grass or hay or uh, seeds can I
2: throw on a paddock that will grow quickly enough that it'll recover for them. Well, this time of year, of course, cool weather things like oats or rye or you know even wheat can be grown in this area. Uh The important things about rotational grazing, and there are books written on this go to acres u s a uh and and you will find some books written by people far smarter than me. But the most important thing about rotational grazing is you don't move your stock based on what the uh paddock that they're on looks like. You move your stock when the next paddock is ready to receive them, and um a lot of people. Move their animals too often, so that the place that they are currently grazing doesn't seem to get grazed down as far. But uh, it's not mm-hmm. nearly as effective. And I knew an old fellow. I don't even know if he's still alive. But he was running a hundred head of cattle on a hundred and ten acres. And uh, but he was he was literally he had it divided up into so many small paddocks. He was moving them every couple of days. So um, oh. there is there is the thing is too much stock. But um the important thing is remember in moving, you, you move them to the next paddock when the next paddock is ready, not based on what the one how the one they're in looks. Okay. Um last
8: question. Salt or potassium in the um water water softener. <clears throat> I noticed that my field or you know the where the where it
2: gets uh, sprayed by the uh, yeah, by the backflow or whatever. Uh, potassium, yeah. is, potassium is a lot better than sodium. Uh, sodium okay. is very hard on a lot of plants. Now, I was <laughs> next to the water, <laughs> next to the gulf for a couple of days last week after we got through with our market uh, work, and it's amazing the salt-tolerant trees that really don't care. But across the board, um, things are less bothered by potassium than they are by sodium. So your, your sodium chloride is what to avoid, your potassium chloride. Your doctors will tell you it's much, much better for you. And uh, the same is true of most plants. But I have to say, don't forget, there are some plants that will grow in very salty situations, so it's not an absolute.
8: Okay. Yeah, I I threw some rice out on, on the field there because it, it Become infested by you know, it was brown rice infested by bugs, uh-huh. so I didn't want to eat it. <laughs> but I threw it out there, <laughs> and I've got a nice rice crop growing out there. And that sure. that seemed to do okay. Uh, but if the other part is just almost dirt, and it when we uh, bought the house about a year and a half ago, it had a nice field of uh, grass growing there. and Now it's just dirt, and it's the only thing that's changed. I think is I switched over to salt
2: when we moved in Sure, Sure. I'm not sure if he
8: was using potassium or not
2: I I don't, you know, that's hard to say but uh, I have Mm -hmm. to tell you sheep are hard on the land sheep and goats are the hardest thing on the land. Horses and cattle tend to bite off the top of the plant and give it a chance to regrow sheep, you know graze it down so low that uh, it, it, I I don't know the exact situation, and I haven't raised sheep in years. Coyotes put me out of that business a long time ago. No. But uh, sheep, you may have too many sheep on your land is what it comes down to. Uh, you don't I'm need to get fewer to sheep. You you, yeah. You don't need to get fewer sheep. You need to get more land, <laughs> in my opinion. But, uh, um, you know, you, you are going to be reestablishing periodically just because the sheep will actually sometimes kill the grass, whereas the horse will just graze it off.
8: Okay. Well, thank you very much, Bob.
2: Love love listening to you every every
8: weekend and
2: Well, I appreciate that very life. much. And always good to hear from you. And uh you get out and have a wonderful weekend and we'll talk again and I need to do another break here. And uh I get to talk about Medina. And that's again a subject I love. I've known Stuart Frankie and his family for a lot of years, uh, not as long as he's been in business because that's over 55 years now. But Medina has been helping farmers, ranchers, and homeowners improve the quality of their soil and get the nutrition to the plants that the plants need, always working with the soil rather than against it. Medina's products are natural. Many of them are certified organic and they're they're always moving forward. We're going to see some new things, Medina, uh, coming up in the next few months that I'm very excited about. But I tell you what, I love the things they produce now. I love that new liquid fish blend fertilizer they came out with a couple of years ago. I alternate it with the Has to Grow plant, and boy, do I have good results. I love their Growing Green, fully certified organic fertilizer. And There's just so many things Medina makes, but the point is Medina products build your soil rather than diminish it. And certain products like the Medina Plus and Soil Activator, they are made primarily to enhance the soil. Others are actually good sources of nutrition. And some things like the orange oil and other products like that can be mixed to create all sorts of wonderful You know, things to use at home. Just know that Medina always provides the best quality in the industry out there. If you want to see a full list of their products, go to MedinaAg.com. Look for them at your favorite nursery or garden center. Products from Medina Agriculture.
0: South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071.
2: All right, back to gardening, and Greg tells me Pete's the only gentleman holding, so uh, if you've been looking, getting a busy signal, it would be a great time to call, 210-599-5555. Well, I say good morning, Pete.
9: Morning, Bob. How are you doing today?
2: Off to a good start. It's going to be, uh, I think, a real nice day out there. Maybe a few clouds, but, uh, hey, it's great weather to get out and get some work done. Oh, I hear you.
9: Hey Bob, a uh, couple of questions. First one: Crepe myrtles. We moved into a house uh, last April, and there's some about eight crepe myrtles on the uh, property. Uh huh. Some of them are small, some of them are big and overgrown. Like okay. Really bad. What's the remedy to uh, trim those back, especially the
2: overgrown ones? Well, you can trim them back pretty severely if you want to but um don't do what we call crepe murder where that's just where you go in and just whack the tops off of them and recognize now that crepe myrtles come there are hundreds of varieties of crepe myrtles and some of them stop at four feet high some of them stop at eight feet high some of them want to grow 35 feet high so if you've got a really big crepe myrtle um, and you want a really small crepe myrtle, you have to think about replacing it you can You can reduce its size and you can keep it to a reasonable height you know by annual pruning but um, sometimes the plants are just too big the The secret to pruning a crepe myrtle properly is rather than just you know lop off at a given point, follow each individual trunk down and make a cut just above a branch, you know, just, you know, a half an inch, an inch above a branch that's pointing the right direction, the place that you would like that crepe myrtle to sprout out. And you do this going through the plant, basically one tall limb at a time. But if you just whack it off randomly, what you're going to get is this little bird's nest of growth that just, I don't know, it's not good for the plant. It doesn't look good. But when you cut just above a smaller existing limb, the Uh, crape myrtle simply put its efforts into growing that and you can you you can reduce the size substantially without just butchering the plant and that's the best way to go about doing it. Now if they're a bush and you would rather have them more tree-like you can take some of those big trunks all the way out, leave the ones that you like trim off the lower foliage and just force them to be trees instead of being big wide bushes. Left to their own you know they would make a big wide bush but um, and, and what you may find, since the property is new to you and you really don't know the varieties there, you may find that you've got an assortment of varieties, some of which are normally 12 feet tall, some of which are normally 30 feet tall. So it may be that, you know, and, and you'll know more after you've been through a flowering season. You'll be know more after you've been through a summer as to what their growth habit's going to be. But some of them you know, maybe more appropriately grown as, you know, a multi-trunk tree, whereas others may be more appropriately grown as a bush. So uh, at this point, you just really have to study what you have, but just remember the secret that you can cut them back as far as you like, but always make that point just above a place where you have a little limb already growing, and that way you'll maintain, you know, the attractive look of the plant, which will substantially reduce the size. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it makes
9: total sense because some of them are real thin and spindly, uh-huh. and there's the short ones. And yep. then to the right side of the yard, um, there's about four of them that are pretty massive. Yeah, These ones are going all yep. the way up to the electrical power line.
2: <laughs> well, uh, I would say yes. You do have some different varieties, and, and you need to prune them individually. Remember that they all love full sun, and if you've got some that are – small and spindly, then, you know, you may have to do some other pruning to get more sun to them. Remember also that crepe myrtles are the single most commonly planted plant that's buried too deep in the soil. Most of them wind up at the nursery already four to six inches too deep in the container. So whether it's your big ones by the power lines or your smaller spindly ones, um, one of the first things, even before I pruned, I would get in there and I'd be pulling the soil back away from the trunks of the plants until you get down to where you see those major roots flaring out. You're going to dig through some little fine roots uh, to begin with. But having that that trunk exposed all the way down to what we call the root flare, that's going to do more to improve the health of your crepe myrtles than anything else you do. And my suspicion is if some of them don't seem to be doing as well as others, they're probably buried too deeply. And uh, uh, like I say, crepe myrtles of all the plants I think of that I see planted too deeply, crepe myrtles are probably number one on the list.
9: And as far as feeding them, what would you recommend?
2: Same thing you put on the grass in your vegetable garden. Just a good organic fertilizer. Uh, Medina's Growing Green, Meister Grows Texas Tea, Nature's Creation. They make one they call premium lawn food. Just anything that has, uh, you know, the natural organic materials. Even though the numbers on the bag are lower, the plants are able to use more of the nutrition. But you certainly don't have to buy anything that says it's specifically for crepe myrtles. A good general purpose dry organic fertilizer is all they need. Okay, and second question
9: uh rose bushes, I trimmed them back already. they were uh-huh. majorly overgrown uh-huh. Uh-huh. I trimmed them back uh-huh. to about two feet. they started you know uh they started budding you know already where uh-huh. leaves are coming out and stuff right. what is the right. best food for them?
2: same thing I mean if you okay. want to buy something specifically or if you want to get uh something uh, there's a product uh, company called Maestro makes it. They call it Rose Glow, but I still blend that in, you know, with a general purpose fertilizer. And um, if you want to put some Epsom salts around your roses, they will love it. But they really don't have to have anything that says that it is specifically for roses. Let me tell you just uh, you know a couple of things about roses. The, the thing you're concerned about most now is if we should get a hard freeze with all that new growth coming out. Typically we wait a little bit later. We usually wait around Valentine's Day as being the best time to prune the roses. But if we should get another hard freeze, you may want to try to cover to protect that new vegetation. The big rose plant is real hardy but the new vegetation could be damaged by a hard freeze. The second thing is that there is a difference in what we call bush roses and what we call climbing roses. Climbing roses bloom on the wood that grew last fall. So if you prune them too early, you're not going to get many flowers this spring. Bush roses bloom on new growth, and so we tend to prune them pretty heavily in the spring. If it turns out that any of your roses don't bloom well because they're climbers, well, remember next year, let them bloom first and then prune them after they bloom. Your bush roses, yeah, uh, early February is generally going to be about the best time to do it.
9: All righty, Bob. Well, I thank you for your information, and I hope you have a great weekend.
2: And I hope you do as well, sir. Thank you so much. Let's get another break in here real quickly. I get to talk to you about Wild Birds Unlimited, another of my favorite subjects. I know the people. When I talk about somebody here on the radio, they're people that I've known probably for many years, people that I have total confidence in, and I can tell you, our Wild Birds Unlimited store out on uh, Northwest Military, right there in the shopping center at the corner of Northwest Military and Hebner the best I've ever seen. There are Wild Birds, uh, of course, it's a franchise, but every individual store selects their own gift merchandise to go along with the top quality Material from Wild Birds Unlimited. They have the absolute best in gift merchandise as well as in, you know, birding supplies, so to speak. And many of their feeders carry a lifetime guarantee. They have feeders for thistle seed, and then they have the mixed seed. And yes, by the way, they have different blends of mixed seed based on the time of year. Not what you're going to find in the grocery store. You're going to find what your birds need at the appropriate time. And of course, they've got uh, just the very best in feeders. They've got bird houses. It's time to get those martin houses up if you're hoping to attract them for the season. And <laughs> one thing's always on my mind Valentine's Day's coming, and that means probably a gift or two. And that's the first place I go looking for gifts for my outdoor friends, it's Wild Birds Unlimited you love visiting them. It's not a huge store, but you walk in and say, wow, how did they get so much in here? It's out, like I say, in the shopping center, kind of on the side that faces Northwest Military. They're there to serve you. And if you ever have a question, the number's easy to remember, 479-BIRD, 210-479-BIRD. Kyle and his staff would love to help you at Wild Birds Unlimited.
0: South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster, News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071
2: all right back to gardening uh getting a little bit close to news time but let's get started with uh it's going to be uh ray i'm sorry next up is art and then it'll be ray and kathy uh good morning art
10: greetings bob uh greetings a couple questions on uh want to grow some shelling peas uh some uh snap peas uh one yes or no should i seed start uh what preparation and the ground fertilizer and uh, i guess they need trellises
2: um there are bush forms and trellis and vining forms and both of them produce very well they uh, you are much better to start with seed peas due to the root structure do not transplant well but uh they you know it's certainly time to get them in the ground if we get a hard freeze you may need to cover them but um uh it's they're absolutely wonderful and there are many different varieties. Uh I like for uh snap peas. There's one called Oregon Sugar Pod. Happens to be one of my favorites. If you're looking for Shelling Green pea, uh Wando is one of the good varieties out there. I'm I'm more into the more into the snap peas where you eat pod and all, but uh They are absolutely delicious, Uh, they will grow until the weather starts getting hot. So uh, freezing weather, once the plants are up and growing, freezing weather will damage the blooms but not the plants. So this is the right time of year to get them planted. Just remember if we have a real hard freeze forecast or if the little plants have just sprouted, you may need to give them some protection. Otherwise, let them grow, and they'll start producing just about the time we get beyond the danger of freezing weather, and uh, hopefully we get a, a long picking season. But uh, a great plant to choose for the garden, great time to get it planted. If it's the first time you've planted in that area, if you can find some inoculant, uh, it's probably good to use, but it's not absolutely necessary. It's been a little bit hard to find in the past couple of years.
10: Okay. Uh, Is there any other soil prep uh, preference of uh, fertilizer?
2: Oh, I like putting some azomite in, and then I'm going to use just my basic organic, and uh, they'll love it.
10: I love it. Thank you, Bob.
2: You're welcome. Remember, they make some of their own fertilizer, but uh, good luck with it, Art. We'll be right back after news here on KTSA San Antonio.
0: South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555 Two one zero
2: five nine nine fifty five fifty five. Mind left. Uh, we're going to be talking to Kathy, Ray, and Gary, and let's just keep going here. Good morning, Kathy. Yes.
11: Yeah, good morning.
2: Good morning. Hello. Hello there. Hi.
11: Okay, I'll try to be brief, uh, which is hard for me. But in the past. <laughs> <laughs> I received a lemon bush, and it was cute and small, and I put it in a fairly large whiskey barrel, and it did wonderfully on a patio. Uh huh. And it got maybe three feet high, and it produced wonderful lemons, which I actually have three of them in my freezer the size of baseballs, solid ice. Anyway, I don't know why I kept them. I guess as a memory of what this lemon tree used to do. Uh Anyway, the thing did get big and I realized the roots were probably getting root bound in there and I had to decide to take out a perfectly good tree doing really well in the whiskey barrel and stick it in the ground where hopefully the roots had a better shot, which I did in the center of the yard in a very prime property, prominent spot for... Where you can see it, and I loved enjoying it, and it's surrounded by healthy grass and bushes. Over the years, not many years, the tree did not produce, and it did grow. And then we and I fed it, and I talked to it, and I wrapped it, and I kept it protected, and all that good stuff. And then along came 2021, and I did continue to wrap it, and feed it, and water it, and pretty much dead or at least I thought so. Nothing really showed up after it warmed up, no leaves, and I cut it to the ground to the roots, not knowing what else to do. From that came what I now know to be the, well, it was a hostage takeover when that <laughs> sour thing took over the roots. Uh-huh. And I got a about a four-foot bush loaded with leaves and really nasty thorns. I'm trying really hard to get something in that space, and i don't know how to get rid of the roots without poisoning the ground
2: well the the roots don't regrow um, that's uh, there's several things I want to tell you, but first of all, the issue if you get out the original stem, the trunk uh down you know below ground level, it won't come back uh, it comes out it is sprouting out from What is left of the trunk below the ground. Uh, The rootstock that they use is just much more cold hardy uh, and you know it it does come out but you don't have to dig out the whole root system. If you were to go you know four inches out from the base of that thorny mess and cut down six inches into the soil you know you're going to get rid of it. But um, one I, I wish we'd talked before you put this plant out in the yard because being root-bound is greatly misunderstood and uh, very few plants other than shade trees are harmed by being root-bound. In fact, most plants much prefer to be root-bound. Plants that produce like lemon trees and things like that they will make a lot more fruit when they are in a root-bound state. It's just it's not a bad thing. I tell people the only two times that you need to think about moving to a bigger pot is when the plant's gotten so big it you can't keep it standing upright, or when it's drying out so quickly that you have to water it twice a day to keep it watered. So in the future, uh, if you've got it in a you know a good sized pot, uh, it can stay there virtually its whole life. So. Um, That's one thing to know. The other thing is that if you are planning to grow your citrus, and in our area, sometimes it's best just to plan on keeping most citrus other than satsumas. Satsumas are more cold hardy. But if you really want to have a lemon growing year after year, then it's probably going to do best to keep it in a container. And even though they're a little harder to find, there is what we call a dwarfing rootstock. There is a rootstock that when they graft the lemon, lime, whatever, onto this rootstock, the rootstock is called flying dragon. And when the plant is grafted onto that, it still produces the large, big, good fruit, but the plant is dwarfed by the rootstock. It's the same thing they did years ago with the rootstock they found in in England called M9, and they found they could put any kind of apple onto that uh, rootstock and it would keep the tree small and still give big fruit. Well, Flying Dragon does the same thing in the citrus world. So, uh, if you can find a new lemon tree on Flying Dragon, um, then then it's going to be much easier to maintain in a pot. Back to your original thorny thing that you have growing out there. The other option would be to regraft it. In other words, you've just when when you got your original tree. It was grafted as a very small, little seedling rootstock tree. At this point, um, and there are people that do grafting, or you could learn to do it yourself, Uh, you could go back and re-graft that thorny tree. You could put a good lemon variety, such as your Myers, onto that. You might graft it, let's say this uh, thorny rootstock has four major limbs coming up. You could actually... (laughs) You could actually graft a, a lemon onto one thing. You could graft a lime onto another. Uh, you could have what they call a fruit cocktail tree producing three or four different kinds of fruit, or you could regraft four branches all with Myers lemons and have the potential for a very productive tree. So... Um, There are a lot of things to think about before you, you know, dig that old rootstock out and replace it. And and that may be the best thing to do, and that may be what fits your life best. But you don't don't have to dig up the whole front yard, and you don't have to have a backhoe to get rid of it. If you move out just a few inches from the base, go down, cut those roots six inches down, uh, and totally get out the trunk that was left in there, it'll be gone.
11: Well, it does appear to have a really strong, hefty root system. There's Mm -hmm. large, the size of my ankles, and it's just – I keep thinking it's got to be something that's worth keeping. It's (laughs) obviously time to grow. Sure. Um, I have not done grafting. Have you considered redoing your seminars and maybe doing a grafting seminar?
2: (sighs) There's still – problems of uh, covid and other things so we're trying to find a way to do it but we don't have them yet now and this is something i meant to announce earlier um Phanix is having their fruit tree seminar today over there runs from 9 until noon i don't know how much they're going to cover citrus grafting but you might try calling over there i'm not sure what time they start answering their phone number six four eight one three oh three but you might call over and ask mike or mark if citrus is going to be covered and if grafting is going to be discussed but um uh, there are i mean you can go online there are books and things that will instruct you in grafting i mike college years i grafted a lot of peaches and plums i've never done citrus grafting but i don't believe it's all that difficult to do
11: it's either graft or take an axe a pitchfork and a really sharp shovel and get down (laughs) there and try to whack and hack it out
2: uh that's pretty much the choice okay wow (laughs) wow
11: I would very much like to grow an attractive something out there that's self-supporting in the in the weather that we wind up with, and the right. great myrtle seems like a good product to put there. It's attractive I, and it, it's
2: yeah. It, I think you're right. Let me let me give you one other alternative here. If you can cut that rootstock down to ground level, chainsaw or whatever it takes, or someone giving you a hand cutting it down to ground level. Um, you can drill down into the stump, put potassium nitrate in there, which will help cause the stump to rot away so you don't have to try to dig it out. You could cover it. Uh, it's only, you know, use. I, I do not like weed block fabric, but you could cut some little two foot by two foot squares, three or four of them, put over the top of that, weight it down with mulch or something like that, and you can literally smother the plant underneath it. I've known people to take a, uh, and it sounds like this rootstock is pretty big, this rootstock plant, but I've known people to take, uh, you know, a a metal bucket or something like that, dig down around and put that down over the top of the trunk and then bury the whole thing, and that can be used to kill the trunk uh, and keep it from coming back out. So there are are other options to the backhoe.
11: How, okay, backhoe is not happening, so
2: it's me. <laughs> I say that in jest, of course. <laughs> I know,
11: I know. So how long with the bucket on top, how long would it stay there?
2: Um, as long as it was trying to sprout out, it might be a year. But, um, you know, they what they would do, and, and this sounds like a problem for you because it has such big roots coming out, but uh, they're basically, you know, digging around and then just covering up that sump with a bucket, two three, four inches down into the ground, so um it's not going to take all the work out of it, but uh I've known people that where appearance wasn't a thing, they do the same thing with a stack of old shingles they'll put you know they'll in effect roof it with two or three layers of shingles, you know sticking out a foot on all sides, and that tends to smother it out um, so it's th- there are other ways to kill it without having to dig it all out. <laughs> And without using the toxic chemicals,
11: rather, and the, without the nitrate in the bucket and the year of trying to kill it off to make it viable for something else, I guess. So
2: and here's we, one other. Here's one other option, Kathy. There is something called a stump grinder. Uh, this is not a do-it-yourself oh, yeah. project, but uh, uh, many arborists, many tree care companies have a stump grinder. Uh, there's a fellow uh, up in uh, Bernie uh, Kelly that uh, they used to call it R&R Tractor, I've forgotten what they call it now, but uh, Kelly has a full-time, part-time business taking his stump grinder out and grinding stumps for people and it literally chews up the stump about six inches down into the ground which in most cases keeps it from sprouting back out. So, um, you know, you might call around, see if it's affordable, is they're not real expensive, but, uh, and, and like mm-hmm. I say, it's not something you rent and do yourself, but somebody with a stump grinder might, you know, do the job for the cost of a really good dinner out or something like that and save you a lot of hassle.
11: And it does not destroy the ground, anything in there, if I dug no. another hole and put something no. into it.
2: No, it just, just is grounded mm-hmm. up. You wouldn't put right into the same hole, but you would do that anyway. You'd move a foot to either side, and you could replant your crepe myrtle or whatever, and things go along real well.
11: Okay, and the potassium nitrate, when you uh, drill holes down into it, how long a process would that take?
2: That rots the, the stump out um, on this kind of wood probably six months, but you would, you would drill a number of holes, half, three-quarter inch in diameter, and then fill them with, uh, it's usually sold as stump remover, potassium nitrates, uh, proper chemical name, saltpeter's a common name for it.
11: Okay, there's several choices here. Yes, ma'am. Equipment, a great deal of digging, or a drill in potassium nitrate. <laughs> or, a stump
2: okay. or a stump grinder. Or a stump grinder.
11: Yes, yes. I will try that one first. I'll ask around, and I will go looking to see if I can't rent those things.
2: Kathy, they are heavy. They weigh a couple of hundred pounds. Oh. They literally sit oh, on top of mine. the ground and chew it up. And I know you're a capable lady, but uh, I would rent one <laughs> if I was doing it myself. Okay. And there, <laughs> and I could drive a backhoe. I, I know how to do all those things, too. But a stump That's grinder, right. uh, kind of like an air spade, is probably best left to a professional.
11: Got it. Thank you. I didn't know you're the welcome. size of that thing.
2: Yeah. Thank you. Well,
11: um, thank you again.
2: You're certainly welcome. Certainly welcome. All right, uh All uh, right, Ray, you're up next, but I need to get a break in here. And talking about Phanix, uh, I can officially remind you that they are doing their annual fruit tree seminar, 9 until noon today. Uh, it's outside, so, you know, wear a jacket, uh, dress for the weather. It looks like it's going to be dry. It looks like it's actually going to be a pretty good morning. But uh, they're going to cover a lot of different things when it comes to fruit tree selection, pruning, growth, all sorts of things like that, uh, free charge, and uh, you know, while you're there, you probably want to check out all the different kinds of fruit trees they have for sale. Phoenix has been doing this for over 85 years now, so they know the varieties and things that do well. They have a bunch of multi-grafted trees, too. This is something that's just uh, really, really fun. You can get a peach tree with four different varieties of peaches or a plum tree with that, or you can actually get uh, a tree that has different fruits. You can't just graft any plant onto another, but there are a number of these things. See, Sometimes call them fruit cocktail trees, and Fanix has those as well as the individual varieties, and they know which ones are best for the hill country, which ones are best for south of San Antonio, and which ones are best right here in Bear County. Fanix also has uh, quite a selection now of seed, potatoes, uh, onions, leeks, and berries of different sorts, not to mention all the uh, appropriate vegetables. It's just, you know, it's early spring, late winter, whatever you want to call it, and Phanix is stocked up and ready for the season. But the uh, Fruit Tree Seminar only happens once, and it's today from 9 until noon over on Home Green Road, right where Fanix has been for over 80 years. Visit their website for more information at com.
0: South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071.
2: All right, back to gardening. Should be Ray and Gary and Juan and Steve and Ray is first in line. Good morning, Ray. Good morning. Morning, sir. I
12: have a couple of areas that are brought in prior to the last freeze. Uh huh. And they started developing a grayish white moss like fungus from the bottom up towards the top. What can I do to get rid of that, and what caused it?
2: I want you to take your thumb and rub hard on that, on what looks like fungus. I suspect that you're not actually looking at fungus. I suspect you're looking at a little insect called a mealy bug or possibly something something called cottony cushion scale, but I'm pretty sure on a plumeria, the problem is an insect rather than a fungal problem. And you're probably going to want to spray. Some people like spraying. There's a product called Neem, uh, which is great as long as it's very fresh. It does not have a long shelf life. I usually use a product called Spinosad Soap. But uh, the giveaway will be, you know, like I say, take your thumb and you'll find some oh moisture underneath. You're actually squashing a little bug that's down underneath that white fuzzy stuff. If it does, just kind of brush off like a powder. Then it could be a fungus, but uh, lots of lots of years and lots of mealy bugs later, I'm, I'm afraid that's what you're looking at.
12: Well, I can understand that. That would be in a couple of spots, but this is surrounding the entire plant. Oh yeah, yeah. like you were to put a cloth all the way around it.
2: Yeah, and again, that's what makes me um, uh, makes me think that it's almost certainly just a real severe infestation of the insects, rather than rather than a fungus fungi they're just fungus is just not common on plumarias in fact it's yeah, it's not very I've common had
12: them, i've had them for years and this is the first time i've had it on there so yeah
2: well if it is if it is a fungus you can get rid of it uh um by spraying it with the lute hydrogen peroxide you can soak some cornmeal in water and um, you know, let it stand overnight and then spray with that. That will knock out most fungal problems. I mentioned the product called Neem, N-E-E-M. It's made from a Brazilian tree, and it has the unusual property of being both an insect killer and a fungicide, and yet it's uh, totally safe for people and pets. Um, so if, if you want one product that would take care of either problem, uh, Neem would be your choice. The thing, you know, fungi fungi tend to occur and grow um, from when there's too much moisture. If a fungus spore lands on a dry leaf or a dry stem, nothing happens. If a fungal spore lands in a drop of moisture, then it can germinate. I don't know if that's the correct word on a fungus because it's a spore, not a seed. But that will allow it to grow and spread. But... Uh, uh, again, fungus on plume areas, like you said, you've grown this a lot of year and years and you've never seen it before. I think that some creature um, more likely brought in the scale insect or the, the melee bug, which is an unarmored scale, and I'm I'm almost certain that's what you have growing there.
12: Okay, so either name or spinosad soap.
2: <laughs> that's what I would do. Um, I would start, if the problem is as thick and as severe as you indicate, you might want to take uh uh and you don't want to overdo it but just old common rubbing alcohol you know over the covid years everybody in the world has figured out uh, what rubbing alcohol is uh just take a cotton ball or something like that and like so you don't want to you don't want to overdo it on the plant but you can just rub it over and the alcohol will kill most of those mealy bugs and then you can follow up with your name. um if you want to do that, or else you can just simply use soap and water uh maybe a soft sponge or something like that, wipe off or brush off as many of them as you can before you spray, and you get them under control a lot more quickly.
12: okay, sounds good. One more quick question: How far north do mountain laurels grow?
2: Mountain laurels are they're limited more by soil types; they like our alkaline soils. Um, as far as cold, uh, probably not much further north than Dallas. Um, you, you're not going to find them up in Oklahoma except in rare areas. But uh, as far north as Dallas, uh, they'll do fairly well. But if you're moving over toward east Texas into the more acidic, uh, sandy soils, uh, they don't really like that soil. So they're limited more by soil type than by temperature. Okay. What One, one other thing real quickly. Uh, There is a plant they call mountain laurel uh, that grows in the east. I spent my high school years in East Tennessee, and what they call mountain laurel over there is much more closely akin to rhododendrons. And they grow way, way up, much further north. But it's not all our old Sephora. The botanical name of mountain laurel is Sephora secundifolia. Uh that's, you know, that's not going to grow. But just because something says Mount Laurel, check and see which Mount Laurel it is before you choose it.
12: Okay, so it wouldn't grow in the Kansas area.
2: Uh, you grow it in the big pot and drag it in when it gets really cold. <laughs> yeah,
12: okay. Okay, appreciate your help.
2: Get back and let me know what you find on your plumeria, Ray. Uh, sure I really want to know, and uh, we'll talk again. So very okay, good. Thanks. Yes, Thank sir. You. You're welcome. Uh, Gary, let me uh, let me get a break out of the way here, and then it'll be you and Juan and uh, Steve next. Right now, though, I get to talk about Southwest Metal Roofing Systems. And once again, just a pleasure to talk about a company that I know and have done business with for many, many years. They put the roof on my home. I'm sure it's been over 20 years ago. Never called them once with a single problem. It's amazing how efficiently they did the job. But my house is complex; got a balcony around three sides upstairs, three chimneys, lots of flashing. They took it all in stride. And Like I said, I've I've never called them once with a problem. Uh, on our nursery here, before we knew about Southwest Metal Roofing Systems, we paid a company a lot of money to put a roof a metal roof on, which promptly rusted out. Uh, didn't honor the guarantee, so we just knew about Southwest Metal Roofing Systems. By then, they came and put in. A on, on one of their metal roofs we've had not one single problem and they were less expensive uh, than the original roof that we put on. Southwest Metal Roofing Systems is simply the way to go if you want a company that honors their warranties <laughs> they never have to come out and do anything but uh, it gives you the best metal in the industry, gives you the best workmanship in the industry lots of choices of colors even of styles they have uh, The durable lifetime quality metal that looks like ceramic tile, for instance. They're also very, very energy efficient. You're going to save money on every energy bill that comes out. Most insurance companies give you a discount on your homeowner's insurance. I'll say many do. I don't know about most. I know mine certainly does. There's just a lot of reasons to choose a metal roof from Southwest Metal Roofing Systems. And they do new construction as well as replacing roofs that had a problem so if you're building a new home and you never want to have to worry about the roof again you just give them a call 210-822-6868 that's 210-822-6868 for southwest metal roofing system south texas gardening with bob webster news talk 550
0: ktsa and fm 1071
2: all right back to gardening and back to the phone lines gonna be Gary and Juan and Steve Gary is next. Good morning Gary. morning Bob I'm good morning, three sir. Cum qu- I've okay got three kumquats that are um, in
6: large pots with volume of a half whiskey barrel. I uh-huh. want to put one of them in the ground to see if I can go a little larger. am okay I, Is that misguided?
2: <laughs> yeah. Can you look into your crystal ball and tell me what the weather's going to be for the next 10 years? Yeah. Come,
6: and come I'm, willing to, I'm willing to build one, uh, you know, a scaffold system or whatever. <laughs> I've got I'm retired. I've got lots of time to You know, maybe if it's going to get like it did two years ago, maybe to protect yeah. it.
2: Yeah. But um, well, am I making a mistake? I don't think so. Um, I knew a lady here in San Antonio that had a kumquat in her yard for many 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 years i made deliveries to her home when she probably had two or three hundred fruit on that plant when it wasn't more than about five or six feet tall now having said that kumquat does not make a large tree it makes uh, a nice size bush and putting it yeah putting it in the ground doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to grow bigger but kumquat is more cold hardy certainly than lemons uh probably not quite as cold-hardy as Satsuma's, but uh, um, if you can you know, find a place that has at least half a day of good, strong sun, I wouldn't hesitate to put it in the ground, and you can probably build yourself a little you know, structure that you could put over it if we get another of these uh, arctic blasts, whatever you want to call them. Um, but it's the kumquat should be cold hardy down in about the twenty-two to twenty-three degree range. So unless it goes very suddenly from super hot to super cold, uh, you're not going to have to protect it very often. Now it's now a good time to move it. Sure, to, sure. To, to put it in the I, ground. I it, it, if if it were me. I would wait a month just to be sure we're beyond the potential of that bitterly cold weather. But, you know, the sooner you put it in the ground, the sooner it starts growing roots. There's nothing wrong to do with doing it now. But um, if it's not something you have to do, uh, middle of February would probably be better than the middle of January.
6: Now, I have the two, the two others that are in pots. Of course, like you talked about earlier, the, the soil has decomposed uh-huh. and they've shrunk pot so do you have tips on replenishing that soil do i just root prune it a little bit lift it up put more potting soil and kind of start over
2: i would do all about uh you know all except the root pruning how big are the pots that uh, the others are in
6: they're in they're in the volume of a half whiskey barrel
2: big pot if it would be possible to tip the pot over on the side slide the plant out and then just, you know, add additional soil. You don't want to pile soil up around the trunk, but you can put three or four inches of soil in the bottom of the pot, uh, carefully lift the root ball back in, and just fill it around the sides. Um, I mean, you sound like a capable guy, even if you are retired. Um, And it's not a big job. You might want to have a friend, uh, you know, just help you lift it. uh, You probably already know this, but rather than try to... You know, grab a root ball, you're better if you have a small tarp or something like that, uh, slide it out on that. And, you know, two folks uh, can get two of the corners. I mean, two people, you know, uh, can grab the four corners, lift it much more easily, and slide it back in if it turns out to be heavier than you expect. But um, I I certainly wouldn't try to replace the existing soil. I'd just add more soil underneath it, put the root ball back in, and fill it around the edges. Okay. Now, uh, I also have a blackberry in a in a similar size pot.
6: It uh-huh. needs to. I need to move that into a. Okay. Can I uh, can I take that out and move it to a different? Maybe even put it in the ground.
2: Is now this time after- to do that? Yeah, this afternoon would be great. Okay. And you you will create one additional challenge with your blackberry in that your blackberry tends to spread by underground, what we call rhizomes, underground stems. While you had it in the pot, you were able to contain it. When you put it in the ground, it's going to want to take up a larger area. And uh, it's not, I wouldn't call it invasive, but you will be digging up little plants around it uh, every year or two because it will go from being in a 16-inch pot to occupying a 10-foot space in the flower bed, uh, given a few years to do it. Okay, something to think about. Yeah. Okay, thank you, sir. And one one more thing. On your kumquat, do you have the sweet kumquats, the miwa? There, there's a sweet I kumquat kind of and a bought sour them, kumquat. I bought, them
6: at, I bought them at the internationally famous nursery known as Shades of Green.
2: <laughs> well, then they are miwa, <laughs> and they are a great plant. I hope you really enjoy them, and uh, oh, I do appreciate I have-
6: <laughs> and uh, and we've enjoyed having them. I never had one growing up. My wife introduced me to them, but I, I love growing them, and I like looking at them, the, the orange against that, that green foliage.
2: They really look nice. And they, you don't have to peel them, and they're very, very healthy for you. So uh, you made a good choice. Yeah, I can, and... I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, anyway, well, listen, call me uh, with more questions any way I can, and good luck with it. Just be sure the one you put it in the ground um, put it in an area that's not likely to get a blast of north wind and be sure it gets at least a good half day of strong sun. Will do. Thank you, sir. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Gary. Juan right. is up <laughs> Goodbye. Juan is up next. Good morning, sir. Good morning. That'd be Steve. Oh, I'm sorry. Juan dropped off. I didn't
10: look at the note here, and then I'm here. Steve's turn. Good morning, Steve good morning just a couple of quick questions for you today bob earlier you were talking about planting the t- uh, potatoes and talking about the rock uh rubbing them in rock phosphate right i always use the wood ash from my uh, uh, fireplace am i missing a benefit by not using the rock phosphate
2: uh rock phosphate is 10 percent better you know i okay. i use whatever's convenient there's nothing at all wrong with wood ashes and uh you know i did it for a lot of years before rock phosphate came along and i You know, that never had a problem with wood ashes. uh, If you're a person who enjoys experimenting, uh, just, you know, do a portion of the row with the wood ashes and a portion of the row with the rock phosphate and see if you notice any difference. Depending on the soil type, you might see some benefit or you might think, gee, wood ashes work just as well. Well, that's a good idea.
10: Thanks. Uh, The second question, real quick, is it too early for me to uh, trim back my uh, perennial salvias?
2: Oh, man, again, gaze into your crystal ball and tell me what the weather's going to do. It will, if your perennial salvias, and I presume we're talking the woody ones like salvia gregii or perhaps mucantha, the Mexican bush sage, okay, it's going to take them about three or four weeks to really start sprouting out with new growth. That new growth is more freeze susceptible but it's kind of like roses we we try to prune roses around the second week of february knowing that we could still have some really cold weather afterwards but it's going to take the roses a little while to start coming out um greggy i, I you could probably get away with it but again i think back two years when that really arctic blast blew in on valentine's day so if you can put it off um Oh yeah, I'd I'd put it off for two or three weeks. Now, having said that, uh, in our personal gardens, we had some greggy eyes at the tops. It's actually where they were sheltered by another plant, and that top three inches of new growth uh, froze on them. And if you've got some ugly growth on that, go ahead and just cut off anything where you're cutting deadwood. You're not going to stimulate anything. But if this is your Annual fairly severe pruning. I'd, I'd I'd find some something else to prune for two or three weeks, and and then do your perennial salvia's. Now the ones okay, that are. that's not good.
10: Yeah, it's mostly just the top six or eight inches that kind of got yeah. frosty in that last yeah. country well. But I think, can, I, there's no problem waiting.
2: Yeah. Now any any of your softer stem salvia's, indigo spires, uh, mealy, cup sage, salvia of. Uh, Oh, gosh, what's what I'm trying to think of? Coccinia, the tropical sage. Those are all frozen to the ground anyway. So, by all means, cut those back if you haven't already. But your woody salvias, yeah, three weeks from now it's going to be better. Perfect. Okay, thanks, Bob. You're welcome, Steve. Appreciate, Appreciate it. the call. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Goodbye. All right, uh, we need to get a couple of commercials done here. We'll be right back with more phone calls. South Texas Gardening with
0: Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk five fifty KTSA and FM one oh
2: seven one. All right. Well Juan got back through and then James grabbed a line, so that'll be the order. Good morning, Juan. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm off to a good start. It's uh you know, the closer we get to spring, the the happier I am, I'll just put it that way. I'm not a winter guy. I I don't mind a little ice fishing every now and then, but uh, you can always go see that stuff. I like living somewhere where typically our winter weather is pretty brief. So uh, every day I'm I'm a little happier. The days are a little longer, a little more sunshine, and a little more warmth. How about yourself?
1: Oh, uh, doing good. This is a great day today. <laughs> yes, sir. I got one question. All right. Okay. Trying to make some compost, all right. Have you ever, what's your opinion on Johnson Sioux bioreactor compost?
2: Um, great question. Um, there are, there are basically two things that contribute to making compost. Uh, one is uh, bacterial action and the other is fungal action. And the way that you get the maximum growth is through what we call static pile composting, which means that you're not out there turning it again and again and again. I'm not into these little, you know, barrel composters and things like that. There are some different composting systems that tend to speed up the process a little bit, and you still get that good combination of, uh, you know, uh, bacterial and fungal growth, but it, it really—it it just depends on how much room you have and how much you want to invest in it. I mean, compost happens. Compost is a natural uh, process, and you can buy good compost. So, I'm not really in most cases. Uh, I, I'm not into you know, these so called different systems. Now if you're in an apartment, a town home, somewhere that you have no place to have a compost pile, it's about the only thing you can do. But I, I guess what I'm trying to say is you're not gonna make better compost with something like that. It just may be in certain situations it makes it, you know, possible for you to produce more compost, but um uh, compost, uh, I mean, I guess there is some is better than others. But if you've got any system that allows both good bacterial and fungal action, you're going to get good compost out of the deal. Okay. Okay. Well, that's it. That that answered my question. Well, thank you very much. Well, you're certainly welcome. And and tell me the name of that once again. I don't think it's a system I'm familiar with. The Johnson it, something?
1: Johnson Sioux Bioreactor.
2: All right. Johnson it, it Sioux. It. Yes. What what is its claim to fame? What do they tell you about well, it? That-
1: supposedly it it's mostly for industrial farming, all right, and
2: it's just a big uh, it's
1: produced by a big tote. You know what I'm saying? And it uh-huh. it's just just piles everything in there and just like let it do by itself, all right, uh-huh. it's a year, and then they put well, uh, uh, worms in there, and just by itself it. You know, it takes it's a long process. It takes a whole year. To
2: well use. Yeah, and and really any any top quality compost can take from six months to a year. You know you can always speed up the composting process by adding sugars of any sort, dry molasses or liquid molasses are a couple of the best things you can add. I don't know you're really good big compost makers, don't let anything sit still for a year. They turn it about every three months, which does is not really damaging to the, uh, uh, you know, to the fungal component. So, I, I, again, if you want to try it and see how it works, but I wouldn't invest a whole lot of money in something like that because you, you just don't have to do that in order to get good compost, but uh, um I guess basically what I'm saying, if you got somebody who will give you a couple of old totes, don't go and spend a lot of money for, for something fancy that's uh, that's really not, not necessary. Again, uh, I, I'm not saying it's a gimmick, but I'm saying that uh, it doesn't cost anything to make very good compost. Yeah, okay, all right. So if good. you if you do try it, I hope you get back to me and let me know how it does for you.
1: Sure, I will, I will, all right. Yeah, well, appreciate the call on
2: you right. get out and enjoy this beautiful day and we'll finish up this right. hour with, thank you, sir. We'll finish up this hour with James. Good morning, James. Morning, Bob. How are you? Doing, well, everything is just rocking along. It's, uh, uh, it's going to be a good weekend. We're getting, like I said, every day we're getting closer to that spring planting season. So, uh, I know that keeps you busy. and makes you happy.
13: Yeah. I'll, live. Lights are on and the heat mats are cooking and the seed trays are working and we're we're really having fun. Uh, hey Bob, I heard you guys talking about uh, blackberries uh-huh. plants. Right. Uh, we, we grow trees here at the farm in a uh, a real nice uh, root maker root trapper uh, bag. Uh-huh. Right. Uh, they go up to you know 50 gallons they're they're monster they build some monsters sure but uh, professor whitcomb uh, and and myself recommend that if you want to contain an aggressive plant like a blackberry uh, get yourself a root maker root trapper bag Uh, they're about 13 inches tall and you can get different sizes Dig your hole and and put that in there. They've got a mesh bottom in them so the water flows through them. Uh huh. And then, and then plant your invasive plant, uh, in that bag in the ground and uh, no harm, no foul
2: well and and that's a that's a good idea. I personally you know I can always use a few more little blackberry plants, so um and I bet I bet you would do the same thing when those little sprouts start coming up twelve eighteen inches away. You dig them up and put it in a pot and uh take it out and sell it to somebody that's looking for a good blackberry, so yeah if uh the root maker bags so to speak on something like that are ideal i um there there's some plants that work really well with, and others that i I am not as fond of but uh it would certainly be a great way to contain a blackberry if you if you are concerned about it. I think the main thing about blackberries is just choosing a good variety uh um and unfortunately it's kind of like roses i growing up in my grandfather's flower shop, it seemed like the thorner the thornier the roses were, the prettier the flowers were, and sometimes it seems like the thornier the blackberries are, the better the the fruit is, but uh, I know we all, you know, got all excited about a couple of varieties that came out that were going to be such heavy producers and not so many thorns, and it turned out we were too warm to grow them, but uh, um, there's there some really good blackberries out there, and uh, they're certainly an easy plant to grow in this area.
13: Oh, yeah. Uh, You mentioned earlier that compost happens. Well, blackberries happen, too, man, and they grow and grow. Well,
2: you know, I think my my experience, people that have trouble with their blackberries don't water enough in the winter. And I don't know that we've ever talked that much about it. uh, uh, But it's a lot of people with perennial things think they go dormant in the winter. And in our area... Man, we are dry this year. Anybody that's not watering their blackberries, anybody that's not watering their fruit trees, uh, you're not going to have a very productive spring. But, yeah, like, like you say, blackberries are one of the easiest things to grow if you get a good variety. But uh, um, I I think twice a week is not too often to water those, even, even in the cooler months.
13: In in nature, uh, do they grow uh, underneath uh a canopy of trees where they're mulched really heavy with leaves.
2: Well, the, yeah, for the most part, I think probably so. I think all the pretty much all the blackberries you're going to find are, you know, not native varieties. They're ones that have been hybridized and improved. Um, but uh, I, I know dewberries that are their first cousins. Uh, they'll grow almost anywhere. I, I see them along the Guadalupe under fairly heavy tree cover. But I picked them with my grandfather on uh, open fence rows out in the full blazing sun. But uh, they they do love that good organic mulch around them. That's for sure.
13: Yeah. So you recommending a mulch? Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Well, I, I gotta let you get uh, uh, back to your other callers, and I gotta go cut some cilantro, man. <laughs>
2: You do it and you have fun at it, James. Always good to hear your voice. And uh, what I'm going to do is uh, just tell everybody we're only about 10 seconds away from the next segment, which is going to be Howard Garrett. Right now it's news time and then uh, the Dirt Doctor here on KTSA San Antonio. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now,
0: 210-599-5555.
2: All right, back to gardening, but don't dial right now. Uh, we'll open up the phone lines again toward the end of our visit with Howard Garrett and save the last few minutes of the show for more questions. But uh, as you know, if you've been listening very long, we saved this portion of the show to visit with one of the greatest gardeners out there that I know of, and that is Mr. Howard Garrett. Good morning, Mr. Dirt Doctor.
14: Good morning to you and everybody else. How's all the gardeners out
4: there?
2: <laughs> well, every day closer to spring, I think all the gardeners around here just get happier and happier. We we browsed our way through 9 million square feet of showrooms over in Atlanta, and uh, then took a couple of days to, to put our feet up, but uh, really glad to be back to gardening, that's for sure.
14: Did you run into some fun stuff uh, on the trip?
2: It's uh, Yes we did. Not anything earth shaking. Uh this is more gift merchandise than you know, really a trade show or anything like that. We found some we found, found some things that are beautiful to look at, make pretty sounds. We found some great fountains and uh you know, all that sort of uh all that sort of thing. But uh It's, you know, it it was interesting to see. I did not realize that the Atlanta area apparently had the same kind of severe cold we had because a lot of things that uh, normally look pretty good over there this time of year were were brown and crisp. Even some of the hollies that I thought were more hardy. Nobody could really tell me how cold it got, but uh, they apparently had some winter just like we did.
14: Well, Atlanta's uh, interesting place. It's where Judy and I got engaged in underground. Oh, really? Atlanta, yeah. Uh,
1: well, I
2: tell you, anybody that wants to do a study in root flares, that would be a great place to do it. I don't think well, I have ever seen a city, and it's not just the oaks, the crepe myrtles. Uh, I don't know whether you know they just uh, people are a little bit smarter, which I doubt, but uh, uh, they don't. We've not seen the problem with things being buried too deeply, but golly, right. ne- next time we go, uh, probably in January, I'll, I'll I'll try to do. You can walk down a street and probably see, you know, 50 or more large trees, and and a lot of these things have obviously been there a long time, and it, it's kind of interesting <laughs> when the roof flare is in. Kind of gone out over the sidewalk. <laughs> and it, I guess it'd be really interesting to do a cross section, but uh, uh, anyway, just beautiful, beautiful flares all over the cities wherever That's wherever right we, we saw that. Yeah,
14: must must be some good arborists there that have uh, gotten the word out, and it's starting to spread. I'm I'm seeing more and more of them. Cases. In fact, I'm surprised sometimes when I drive by a commercial project, especially and residential uh-huh. too, but especially commercial, and I see that the flares have been uncovered, and I kind of do a double take. So the word
4: <laughs> is, is
14: finally spreading out there a little bit, and that's what it takes to, yeah. to really make a difference. So it anyway. does. This speaking of the freeze, really weird. You know, this is the third year of an event that is uh, really cold after a warm period, this time it was just one day, yep. but I'm seeing more damage, at least cosmetic mm-hmm. damage, than than the last two winters, yep. and that, that one 9 to 10 degree deal that we had. I'm, I think that my bay may have been pushed over the edge. It's, it's brown and pretty crispy looking. How
2: does yours look? Same exact way. Same exact way. I'm not gonna, uh, I'm not gonna put the chainsaw to it. Uh, well, I'm not gonna take it out. I'm gonna give it a pretty severe haircut. Yeah, and wait, uh, I, I think for all of us, one of the important things. And you're not quite as dry as we are, but we're, we're really to a critical point here. They're calling, uh, you know, fire weather warnings on a real regular basis here for low humidity and winds, and uh, the soil is, we, we've gotten to that point where that subsoil layer is really drying out, and I think proper irrigation, proper watering is going to be one of the keys to uh, getting some of these things to come back, and for me that's going to mean hauling water to that bay, but its uh, I think it's going to take that, and uh, then it'll just be wait and see.
14: Yep, nothing else we can, we can do to keep the moisture there, get the organic fertilizer going that first application of the year. A lot of people that are just getting into uh, organics probably don't know yet that the first application of fertilizer in the organic program is a whole lot earlier than the people that use the synthetic stuff still. So anytime now you can get that first application made.
2: And you don't even have to water it in. It goes, goes to work faster if you do, but uh... You know, there's so many people out there that are just learning the benefits of organic that still think they have to be sure that they they don't let it burn things. I keep telling them it doesn't burn, and it's actually dehydration you're worried about. But uh, it's just so much easier as well as being uh, so much more effective. But uh, back back to the freeze, Uh, we're seeing a couple of uh, things that, you know, we don't normally see, uh, we have, as you know, some big Mexican sycamores here on the property, and the leaves just flat froze, and they're not coming down. They're, the trees are just still covered with brown leaves. I think that they will probably just be pushed off as some of the, uh, you know, and, and we see this in oaks, and uh, give me a minute, and I'll think of the word that you use <laughs> to describe those ones, Marquescence, I believe is that yeah. word. yeah. Yeah, that uh, I'm looking for, but normally by this time our sycamores are pretty bare, and we're looking at that beautiful white bark, and the bark has more of a grayish white to it, and uh, the, the trees are pretty much still covered with brown leaves, so it's going to be an interesting spring. It's been an interesting winter up to this point. and. I certainly hope we're past the bitterly cold stuff, because. Uh, but I, I still remind everybody, you know, that the big freeze two years ago for us blew in on Valentine's Day, so uh, we're mm-hmm. we're not rushing to plant tomatoes. <laughs> I'll just put it that way.
14: Right. I was showing uh, one of my arborist buddies something in my office. It was kind of interesting yesterday. In fact, I had noticed my big. I got a pretty big. Mexican white oak that I planted and growing right. really quickly. It's just a beautiful tree. And it got a little bit of discoloration the last two winters. And th- uh, this year, I was driving to the office and looked up at the tree and the whole side on the south side was brown. The, all the foliage. And I thought, man, this, uh, this one day we had really has done a lot more damage. I hope it didn't kill any of those, those uh, any of that terminal growth, so I walked around, we were looking at the north side and it was still green, I said, let me show you the other side, and we walked around to the other side, and it was green, and, I, and then it dawned on me that we had had to clean up a whole bunch of leaves a week before, and so what happened was there was a kind of a quick frost kill of some of the terminal leaves and maybe some just inside the tips, I guess, because the whole oh. side looked brown, and then they they kicked off, and the tree looked totally green again, <laughs> and it looked a little bit more open, but not too much, so it it had uh, a small percentage of the uh, foliage freeze, and then it kicked it mm-hmm. off the plant, and the plant looks perfectly green all the way around it now.
2: <laughs> it's... It's an unusual year i don't I don't know how else to describe it. I think I sent you a picture of the uh, freeze damage to the leaves on cubas, and I've never seen that even when yeah, we've yeah. been down you know in the five degree range and sure they droop and they look absolutely horrible while the weather is so cold and then as soon as it warms up, the foliage is just right back but it's it's it looks like Sunburn, but you know, even on these leaves that never get the sun, I think we might have talked about it last time that you think that there may be a little bit of a perhaps a fungal element too. And uh, it's hard to say, but it's I I can't say that I am seeing a lot of things that I think were really killed. I think most of the damage is cosmetic. I think on some of the viburnums and all, I'm Pretty sure the plants are going to come back out, but I'm not sure whether it'll be from the ground, whether it'll be halfway up, or whether it'll be, you know, all the way out at the uh, terminal ends of the branches that we see it. But uh, it's it's interesting. I I think the one thing that I'm happy to see, is that things that we grow that you don't grow as much of. We grow some of the asparagus, like the foxtails, moors landscape plants, and uh, holly fern. Sertomium is just a great great shade fern here and uh where yeah, we right yeah where we where we've trimmed the freeze damaged leaves off there's already healthy beautiful bright green growth underneath so I'm reassured by that but uh I I don't I don't my know garden,
14: my garden looks the worst I've ever seen it you know mm-hmm. cosmetically I'm looking out at the sedges that I've got in the bed and Ophiopogon and and liriope the tips are burned pretty, pretty significantly. I think I think it'll all kick off. In fact, we may even help it and pull some of the brown off. And I think the, all those ground covers will come back. But right now, they look terrible. The whole garden is, yep. just has kind of a brown cast to it <laughs> right now. First time that's happened in a long time.
2: We're we're seeing the same thing. And I believe last time we talked, I told you how impressed I was with asparagus plumosus And yep. I went back out and looked recently. and. Even though a week after the severe cold it was green and beautiful, it's now gone to totally brown. I'm sure it will come out, but here what I thought was going to be, you know, really a good evergreen look, it just was uh, a little bit slower for the damage to show up, but it's just as brown as the others are now. And, um, I, it's, I, I, you know, I just kind of scratched my head. <laughs> it's been an interesting, an interesting experience.
14: Well, i tell you another thing for people to kind of keep an eye on. I've got uh, uh, a rusty black off my burn. In fact, I've got one in the front. I've got one in the back. I just have two. Uh-huh. And they're both doing the same thing. I, I, I think I told you that they didn't flower this past spring. Right. And then they right. didn't have red fall color. They just, fr- the foliage froze and turned brown. But now they're tri- they're already have tiny little leaves on them that are popping out. So uh-huh. if we have another severe event, you know, later this month or in February, we could have see even more damage. So people need to keep an eye on that, and if you've got any prized plants that have already started coming out, you may want to do some floating row cover or at least cover wrap the trunks if we're going to yep. have another really severe uh,
2: event. Yep. And I think the thing that we saw is that, uh, as cold as it got one layer of row cover wasn't enough. I think that, uh, if, and, and hopefully we're not going to see that forecast of low teens or possibly reaching the single digits, but I think double and even triple protection is, is a good way to go. Like you say on things that are perhaps a little more tender or have sentimental or, you know, just special value to you. It's, uh, it's worth the effort to do.
14: It's always
4: something. <laughs> <That's gardening>.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and this is Texas. I I know everybody. Every, I I think everywhere I go, people say, you know, if you don't like the weather, just wait a minute. But uh, I, I down here, that I think that is true. But there are some places that are typically consistently warmer in some places that are truly consistently colder i'm i'm glad to see some folks that we keep up with up in colorado and wyoming they've got amazing snow cover this year and uh that's a that's a good thing because they need the moisture and plus you know that that's one thing about the big freeze two years ago is that uh, we had six inches of snow sitting on top of things and I think that protected a lot of things, and I think that that may be part of the reason that your Ophiopogon and things like that that are really low-growing, they didn't have that little insulative layer of snow on top, and the yep. cold, cold hit right. them a little bit harder. Yep.
14: Oh, well. It, anyway, the... Um the gardening gods—you know, you never, never know what they're going to throw at you. That's for sure. My, the good news is my garlic and all the uh, cool season stuff are hanging in there pretty well. One of the uh, gardens I designed for a ranch had a little bit of damage where they only uh-huh. used one uh, layer of floating row cover, but 90% of the garden, or maybe a little more, just came through it, came through it fine, and still producing. Uh, good tasty uh cool season
2: things oh that's great that's great garlic just continues to impress me in so many different ways and uh i know members of the organic club of america you've shared you know the garlic just as you did with me and it's just a wonderful plant plus it's just to me it tastes good it makes wonderful pesto and it's just so good for you It's, it's just one of those uh one of those things everybody should be growing. Plus, all the advantages for insect control and things. Anybody that doesn't have a row of garlic, just they don't have a complete garden, in my opinion.
4: Yeah,
14: and some of the other perennial things are good, too. Asparagus and the comfrey and the uh, uh, garlic chives. Talk about a tough plant. In fact,
4: <laughs>
14: it's a little too tough. It'll take over <laughs> the world if you're not careful. Yep. it's a, it's a wonderful plant especially when people are just getting going to uh, to start with that and radishes are probably the easiest quickest things for people to try and uh, have some great success with with their first garden
2: well and and people getting kids into gardening kids and grandkids uh you know, if it was warmer weather, they say what to plant, and I tell them beans, and if it's weather like right now, I tell them radishes, because it's just, you know, it, you're going to get good tops no matter what, and if you take the time to thin properly, uh, radishes are just one of those, they, they just got that little bit of a bite that really adds something to a good salad, so they're they're high on my list of things that people ought to be growing and growing more of, and there's so many varieties out there nowadays, too, and uh I don't know. I think they're they're all worth trying.
14: You know, beets are one of uh, Judy and my favorite foods. It's just so delicious and so easy to cook. I just cut it up into slices or chop it up and put it in a pan. No, no oil of any kind, and just heat it until it's nice. It takes a while until it's nice and tender. It's one of the most delicious things you can grow, but it's not one of the easiest plants to grow uh, from seed. I've had. I don't know if if I uh, Am missing some little key point on it or not? But most things I grow from seed, like Swiss chard and you know various other things, all the radishes, of course, and all that mm-hmm. stuff just pop up like crazy. Beets, a little spotty about how yep. they come up.
2: Yeah, that's been my experience, and uh, I, I think it's partly sometimes you know what what looks like a when you open that package of beet seed. Uh what many people think are individual seeds, I think in many cases are that little capsule that actually has four seeds in it, and I think sometimes it's just so dry and hard, maybe it slows down the germination i I can't say I've ever really dug them back up to look, but uh i'm I'm exactly like you, and uh it it's funny how There'll be a little spot where you have three or four beets come up fairly close together, but then there may be a foot or eighteen inches of row where nothing comes up and I know the yep. seed was all planted at the same depth and uh all pretty much had the same amount of garret juice soak but uh really i I don't have a solution to that i I go back and you know plant a few more seeds, and I can usually even the rows out but uh Uh, And there is something about uh, getting beets to germinate and grow that I haven't figured out either.
14: One thing that we might do is, I've I've thought about this and haven't done it yet, we might soak them in the garage juice a little bit longer. You know, those kind of rough-looking seeds, they're pretty big, actually. Uh, uh, Maybe would do better if they had a little bit more of the uh, of the soaking before they're planted. I, I think I'll try that, yeah. try it both ways, and see see which way works the best this year.
2: <laughs> and you're probably like me. What I need to do is actually time it and make note because, uh, uh, you know, it, it, you just get so busy in the garden. I, I'm not going to say I'm yeah. forgetful or, or ignoring things, but uh, there are just so many different things to do that uh, what I sometimes... You know, want to make a 15-minute soak turns out to be a little bit longer, and uh, uh, really ought to take the time to just take a pencil and I'd, I I like uh, like you have suggested on some of the other seeds, the small seeds, just putting them out. I use parchment, spread the seed out on that, and then just use a mister to put the garret juice out on those. But um, it I think it'd do us all. Or give us a better opportunity to share experiences if we looked a little bit more carefully at exactly how long we're soaking or or leaving leaving things out before we uh, go ahead and move on to the next step. But I well, tell I you, agree. I agree.
14: And, and what blindsides you is that some things are so easy, like the like the radishes and, and other things as well. You get kind of cavalier about it and you just try you know handle everything the same way. And some seeds are just harder to germinate. There's no question about it.
2: Yeah, and I think soil temperature can make a difference on something like spinach. If the soil's not chilled, it's not going to grow. But uh, oh, that's that's why you need a good book like uh, a certain book that uh, Howard Garrett and Malcolm Beck put together on Texas vegetable gardening. It has a lot of good advice in there. And that, along with the Texas bug book, are the two things that I tell people that those two books have to be on your shelf if you really want to have a reference to go to to figure out how to do most of these things.
14: Well, they're not perfect, but they're pretty good. And uh, I've, I've got people sending me books all the time that are coming out new. And I kind of shake my head about most of them. There's a lot of the information uh, that is not all that great out there. So hopefully we can we can help. And if uh, it doesn't work out just right, give us a call. Bob <laughs> is there, and I am too for uh, help. So uh, everybody working together is the best way for it to go.
2: I tell you one one other thing that I'll bring up before uh we we go to our other morning chores, but I and it's going to be hard for people who rely on, you know, an automatic irrigation system, but I I think that considering the way the plants have been affected, we're going to have to be a little bit more selective than usual about how we water things because as I was mentioning at least down here woody shrubs, trees, things like that, I think uh that need that thorough, thorough, deep soak at this point. But you were mentioning the pogons and some of those things that don't normally freeze. Those aren't going to be transpiring the moisture nearly as rapidly and uh I'm advising people to check that soil and be sure it needs water before you water because I'm afraid there's some things and uh and down here we we grow more of the variegated flax lily and things like that. I, I think that if people keep those things too wet while there's not much foliage on them, um, it's going to slow down their recovery. So it's it's not just going to be turn the sprinkler system on. It's going to be go check the soil, and if it needs watering, water it really thoroughly. And if there's still plenty of moisture there, put off doing it for a little while because uh, we uh, it's going to be interesting just to see how things come out. But I think it can make a a big difference. You mentioned the. The fertilizer, I think Garrett's use across the board on flower beds and uh, vegetable gardens and things like that is going to be important as well.
14: Well, we probably don't have time to go into it today, but we might make a note next week. I'm, I'm experimenting with some different techniques on handling the excavation that has to be done around trees that are way too deep in the ground. You know, when you end up with a great big dish or a hole in the ground, um, right. That's always been a sticking point because of its cosmetics, and uh-huh. I'm, I'm playing with some new ideas that um, next week we'll give you a little, and maybe <laughs> can even maybe even have some photographs on uh, how it works might be a way to save that problem.
2: Well, I'm I'm making a note. Uh, I always have a page for Saturday, a page for Sunday, and on. So on next Saturday's page, <laughs> I'm going to make a note of that because that that is a serious problem. And uh, I had a caller earlier; you may have heard that uh, uh, got moved onto a property with some very mature crepe myrtles, some of which weren't doing well, and. I was telling him, you know, about uh, crepe myrtles, right, I still think are probably the worst, although there's some shade trees there. And, and that problem you you mentioned, uh, uh, one of our arborist friends down here was uncovering a tree. I think it might have even been a pecan tree or something. And obviously they, it, it was there when the subdivision was built because he had to go down six feet to find the root flare. And uh, so uh, uh, that'll be a real interesting discussion. I'll be very interested to hear and hear what you're experimenting with.
14: Well, the most dramatic one of those people can see right now if they go to oh, yeah. the, the uh, fantastic uh, tree slideshow, fabulous tree slideshow that's on DirtDoctor.com. We did. We helped a, a family down in Waco uncover a burrow, Took ten feet off of it, and he built wow. a whole structure inside that so that's the ultimate example of what you're talking about but yeah we'll we'll get into that and a couple of new ideas there and i might be able to help uh, in a couple of different ways
2: well i don't have any more trips planned in the near future so i think uh, if, as long as you're available we'll be doing this every saturday for uh some time to come and i will certainly look forward to it howard
14: sounds like a plan thank you bob <laughs> thank Y'all, uh, you sir Enjoy those healthy gardens. I'll see
2: you next time. I look forward to it. Thank you, sir. Bye. All right. Well, we need to get a break in here. I'm pretty sure Greg has the phone lines open. We've got uh, a little less than 30 minutes still to go before you get to here. Martin Bomba and everything you need to know about home improvements. So, uh, You know that number, 210-599-5555, and we'll be right back with some phone calls. South Texas
0: Gardening with Bob Webster, News Talk 550 KTSA, and FM
2: 1071. All right, back to gardening. And, uh, gosh, lots of folks still interested in talking about different issues, so... Looks like it's going to be Tana and Lenny and Stephen and Robin. We've only got one more break to take before the show's over, so I think we'll have time for everybody, and we start with Tana. Good morning, Tana. Hey, good morning, sir. Certainly nice to hear your voice. It's been a little while.
15: Well, I tune into your programs even though I don't call in, and this time <laughs> I managed to get through, it sort of like I think, I got gotcha.
2: you. Very good. Well, it's good to hear from you. How can we help today?
15: Okay, when I was a child, my parents had a victory garden, Mm -hmm. but the pity of it is my mother never taught me anything about gardening, so what I've learned, it's been by trial
2: and error.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Well,
15: they didn't
2: admit it, but I think a lot of theirs was trial and error, too, but... uh, Uh, I know the feeling. How how can I help you uh, avoid more errors, shall we say?
15: (laughs) Okay, the first thing is, when you open a seed catalog, what the heck variety
2: you choose. Boy, that's, yeah. Uh. it, It bears, you know, researching a bit. When you're talking about, you know, do I grow a tomato or do I grow an artichoke? But with varieties, golly, I I look at the things that I look at, you know, are first of all how long it takes to produce because there are uh, a lot of different things that, um, you know, it, one variety will produce in 50 days and the other one takes 110 days. So that has some influence I tend to grow more heirloom things uh, simply because i I think they have a little bit better flavor and I have friends that tell me they tend to have better nutrition so i uh, and and i of course I always avoid genetically modified seeds um I do have some favorite seed companies uh Baker Creek seed is good um johnny's has some good varieties, although you have to be sure you're not getting any of the modified ones. Um, you know, just south of town, we uh, uh, we have a, a great seed company that, you know, puts out fairly small packages of seed. And uh, the, the good thing there is it lets you try different varieties. But, Dana, if I had to say the one most important thing, I think, is keep records – because that way you'll know what does best for you and what you like best. Uh, Howard was talking about radishes, and um, I, I, again, there are so many different varieties out there, and some of them I like, some of them I don't. So it's important to keep up with what you're planting, and you know, and and just grow what works best for you. So uh, it, it's it's tough to say, but um, and again just me personally i I like the heirloom varieties, and I have found some favorites over the years, but I always still plant something new because with almost anything out there, what did well last year might not do as well this year, so i I don't know any surefire things that you know are gonna guarantee it's going to be easy to grow and that you're gonna like it but i those are just, you know, just a few of the things that uh, that I look at when I try to choose varieties.
15: Okay. Well, I have no difficulties whatsoever with tomatoes. Uh-huh. And um, this year I tried beets. Uh-huh. And I'm sure I planted them too close together and did not thin them properly because I have had wonderful messes of greens but no beet itself Mm
2: -hmm. and
15: i planted the detroit uh the old detroit beets
2: detroit dark red yep
15: yep detroit dark red (laughs) and i've already discovered that if i want to plant any kind of carrot i'm going to have to get a seed tape because i just can't you know
2: yeah can't thin them out enough and and on carrots uh again here i think you'll always do better with the shorter varieties the danvers yeah. half longs the nantes and uh, those big old things that are two feet long you see it in some different places you're simply not going to do well with here but i i wish i could tell you on beets uh beets i love beets and have friends that love beets and they just i get very irregular germination and like you say some years um they just don't develop a real big root. Now, there are varieties of beets that are grown more for their foliage, but some of the old-fashioned ones, like the Detroit dark red, um, has been sort of an old standard. But some years it just doesn't produce as well, and I've just pretty much concluded that it's got to be the weather because in exactly the same spot where I had good success one year, the next year is kind uh, uh, kind of disappointing. So... It's, uh, (laughs) just, just plant several different varieties and, and do, do the best you can. I wish I could, I could give you a better answer than that, but, uh, and talk to other people, you know, uh, David's garden seed that I was mentioning, uh, that's just south of town and David has like a thousand different varieties of garden seed and, uh, you can call him and ask him what his suggestions are. Farmer James calls in periodically, uh. We'll ask him to maybe discuss next week or something like that, uh, which beets he's had. I'll make a note <laughs> on my on my little pad I keep here in front of me to ask him next time he calls if he has a favorite beet variety. But uh, beyond that, <laughs> that's there ju- there's just no guarantees. There are some things, uh, even tomatoes this year. My sun gold, which typically is just you know bulletproof, it produced relatively poorly this time around. So every year's different.
15: Well, I appreciate that. Yeah, I've already yeah, after uh two seasons I've figured out pay attention to how long the uh, <laughs> it takes to produce. And if it's not something that will grow in our climate. Yep. Or in our heat, it's mainly yep. is what I'm talking about. Then well. just So I'm beginning to learn. <laughs>
2: <but>. <laughs> as as we all are, but it sure is good to hear from you. I'm glad you're doing well and uh I'll look forward to our next visit you uh you have a a good day gardening and uh greg let's go ahead and get lenny in here before our break good morning lenny morning bob good morning i have a question
8: on cactus okay when you cut cactus ground level what's a good thing to put in there in in that stock to kill that root
2: well that's a great question and the truth is on cacti Um, They don't come back from the roots. They only come back from little pieces of stem. So the most important thing with the cactus is to be sure that you've scraped it just below ground level. Now, sometimes you have to cut the top back and then go back with your grubbing hoe and, you know, just gouge half an inch down into the soil. Um, the thing that you can do that will keep the pads from re-sprouting is spray them down with molasses or dust them real heavily with dried molasses. The molasses will will make them rot so fast they don't have time to sprout back up. But uh most important thing in getting rid of them is just, you know, cut just below ground level because they don't come back from the roots. They come back only from little pieces of stem or leaves.
10: Okay. What kind of molasses would I, would I be putting on them? Cheap. <laughs> Whatever you can no, find. No, no, no. I mean, it's, it's not like your syrup sure molasses, right? Like for
2: pancakes. It, it. Well, it's basically the same thing, but just we agricultural molasses. It's the sugar in the molasses that helps. It's not anything real special. Molasses does have some things in it that really help the soil, but it's the sugar in there is what uh, you know rots the cactus before it has its time to sprout. So just agricultural molasses. Medina packages a good one. Um, uh, I run cattle, you know, on my ranch to keep it under, you know, ag, ag taxation, but, uh, I have, a, a lick feeder out there and I have a guy that comes around and refills it periodically. And if I need extra molasses, I'll just leave a couple of jugs out and uh, he'll fill those when he's filling my feeder. So, uh, um, call around, uh, like say Medina makes a, they make a real good one that you can buy in gallon jugs or even five gallon jugs if you need it, but, uh, Uh, It's not any particular type of molasses, and I would tend to go, as long as I'm getting a good thick molasses, I'd, I'd just shop for price on that product.
8: All right. I appreciate it, sir. If you have any time today, please make it rain. (laughs)
2: <laughs> I've been trying. I've tried to drag some back from the east where it rains a lot more this past week. So maybe that's what these clouds are. They followed me home on Thursday. So we'll, we'll keep our fingers crossed. All then right. you get out and have a great weekend. Greg, let's get our last break uh, done, and then we'll come back and finish up with Steve and Robin.
0: South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM one oh seven
2: one. All right, back to gardening. Just over seven minutes left in the show, and that should be good to talk to Stephen and Robin. Stephen's up first. Good morning, Stephen.
10: Hey, Bob, this is Dave, but I'm not going to argue with the stream caller.
2: So. <laughs> okay, very good.
10: Yeah, I've got a question and, and a comment. Uh, I've got an area that's bounded on three sides by six foot tall board fence and the other side part of my house i'm okay. going to construct some raised beds in there one of those sections the fence is, is falling down when i replace it do you think it would be beneficial to like put some cattle panel or something in there to create some airway is that a little more breeze is that is, is that important in that size
2: of a space oh yeah uh, air air movement is the single most important thing to reduce both fungal problems and insect problems and uh, uh whether it's a greenhouse whether it's a garden space whether it's anywhere yeah the more air movement you have up to a point the better um putting uh, you know a cattle panel in there too is also going to increase the amount of light that you would get to that kind of area, which is going to be good. And depending on what you want to grow, you know, vining plants, whether it's vegetables like cucumbers or just flowering vines, cattle panels make a great trellis to grow things on. So, yeah, it, it sounds to me like a great idea.
10: Okay. All right. Um, but the, the vines and plants growing on it, would, would that restrict some of the air movement?
2: Well, it's, you know, it's a give and take kind of thing. You don't want to plant something that's just going to be, you know, a dense, dense thing. And you might have to thin it out a little bit periodically, but uh, it's going to reduce it, but it's not going to eliminate it the way a solid uh, wood or fiberglass or whatever structure would. So, yeah, you don't want to have it, you know, dense, 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 thick vines. But most vines are open enough that they still allow plenty of air, air movement through there.
10: Okay, uh, comment. I I have a ginkgo. I, I I like ginkgos from the north and they're excellent uh-huh. trees. Uh, <clears> That's Uh I managed to kill one three years ago overwatering it, and I've replaced it. and And this is the third year I've I've had it now. And I I usually have to go out in April and and, and look at it and talk to it to make it start swelling buds. And I I, I also think that. My observation over having one for 30 years is they like a period of cold in the winter. Having uh-huh. said that, we we had a period of cold in December, and, and this crazy January, I, I'm looking at it now, and buds are swelling, and there's one almost that might be showing green, and I'm thinking, <laughs> what, what, what's wrong with this tree? Because, seriously, I don't see buds swelling till. Late March, April, sometimes on that thing, and it makes me wonder if it's even alive. And now, you know, knowing like you said, we could have, we could have another cold snap in on Valentine. Yeah. Valentine's.
2: yeah. So well, you, I, it's, it's, it's it's typical on a lot of things, and most trees, not just many, but I think most trees, if we have a period of pretty intense cold, as soon as it warms up something in that tree says oh winter must be over so we're going to uh you know we're going to expand and grow and this has been a year of up and down temperatures i mean we were severely cold and then we we're in the 70s we were severely cold and then we we're in the 80s and the trees are just confused and uh you know so do i i, do I, I would the, go ahead
10: yeah, do i need to protect the ginkgo
2: it depends on how cold it gets. If they're predicting teens, yeah, I'd cover it if you can. Down to that point, I wouldn't worry. What I would do is spray it with liquid seaweed if it starts to put on more foliage, because liquid seaweed with a little bit of molasses in it is going to increase the amount of sugar in the sap, and that's going to be a sort of a natural antifreeze. So, um, that's what i would i would tell you and uh dave i'm going to let you go so i can get robin in here before the end of the show and good morning robin hi robin
7: yeah good morning good morning okay i have a, an italian fig tree uh-huh. and it's been in there about five years well we have a we're in a community that uh, has yard people and they came in one time about five years ago when um, we were gone and they cut it to the ground. It was, winter. oh
2: wow, yeah, and it
7: came back very multiple uh, trunked, uh huh, about six trunks. Okay, so now with the freeze, it was doing great. It's never made a fig, but it mm-hmm. was growing really pretty. Well, with this past freeze, it looks terrible. How how far should
2: I cut it down? I'll tell you what I would do, is, and that is I would wait until it starts to bud. Um, and, and I have figs that have done the same. Um, but the figs typically freeze back when we get a really cold winter. But it's almost impossible to tell exactly how much of them froze because sometimes it'll come out you know a third of the way up the individual branches sometimes it'll be halfway up sometimes it'll be all the way from the tip of the branch and every now and then it doesn't it, you know it comes out right at ground level and it's almost impossible to tell until it puts until it puts on that first leaf or two And then at that point, you might as well cut it down that far because you know everything above that point froze. And you can watch it. You can see when the bud starts as well. You don't actually have to wait until you have a big leaf on there. But uh, that's just more reliable than trying to scratch the bark and try to figure out exactly how far down it froze and uh, I'm pretty sure it'll be okay. The one thing I would do is water it thoroughly because figs are thirsty plants and the soil is very, very dry. Uh, if you want to trim it lightly, just for cosmetic reasons, you can. But save your heavy pruning until the new growth shows up, and then cut off everything above that point. Does that make sense?
7: Yes. Thank you. Very, yes. Thank you very much. And one more thing. You know, you, the other day you were talking about uh, Arbor Day, sending uh-huh. people uh, plants yep. for the for the more the north part part of our country. Uh, they sent me. Things and it Robin, Robin and- I want
2: to hear this, but I, I have to get out on time for news. We'll do this again tomorrow.